Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here today to talk about stuff this week on the show. It's another kind of grab bag episode. We've got some news about Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones people getting fired, so some schadenfreude. We've got some video game sales numbers and Blizzard, after a month of pretty intense controversy, had a pretty big event at BlizzCon this weekend, so we will be talking about all of that and more today. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing pretty good. It's it's uh, it's definitely it's a broad news week. We've got some fun movie stuff. We've got some fun video game stuff. The you know I'm glad we covered the Hong Kong stuff last time, so we yes. don't have to spend the whole podcast doing it this time. Um, because yeah, that's all that was brought up again through BlizzCon as we expected. Yep, absolutely. Um, it's complicated, but we'll get there when we get there. Uh, Blizzard is in a weird place, but you know the whole it, the, the world is in a weird place. Let's just say that. Um, all right, a little bit of housekeeping really quick. Uh, last week, we released two podcasts. We released our main episode 303, where we talked about all sorts of fun stuff. And then we also had a new Weekly Suit Gundam. It had been gone for a couple weeks, but it's back. Weekly Suit Gundam number 11, where we talked about Mobile Suit Gundam F91, the 1991 film. And I have to say, Sean, it's in the running for my favorite Gundam conversation we've had. That was a really fun episode. Yeah, it turns out when you make a movie that's about a whole TV show compressed into two hours, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. You know, Weekly Suit Gundam, uh, we still release it in the main feed, but it is also its own independent show. I'm happy to see the uh, separate version of the show, as well as the YouTube version, is getting downloads comparable to our main podcast already. Which, after 11 episodes, or 10 when I check this, is impressive, and we're getting a lot of comments on those, including, I shared this with you on Twitter this weekend, Sean, someone asking for weekly Runaway Idion, based on the super obscure Domino show from the 80s. Yes, I mean, I'm ready at any time. Whether we do weekly Runaway Idion is entirely up to you, Jonathan, because I've already seen it. Well, there is luckily no risk of me getting obsessed to the point of, like, devoting my entire life to it because there's only one show right yes it's the one show and then the compilation movie and then the ending movie so there's it. there's the maximum you can do is like 40 episodes and two movies and that's about as deep oh i guess you could buy a bunch of toys and stuff yeah. if you really become obsessive about edo and somehow <laughs> i could grow a really big afro and dye it red yes yes and just cosplay as cosmo yuki for the rest of your life Anyway, yeah, Weekly Suit Gundam is out. You should be listening to that. If you're not, it's really fun. But, Sean, do you want to go ahead and hit up some stuff? Yeah. What's going on with stuff? Yeah, I have a couple of stuff things here. I'm going to... I have played about two hours of Luigi's Mansion 3 on Nintendo Switch. I think I'm going to table talking about that more until next week. It's very, very good. There's nothing I've seen so far that would prevent me from recommending it. It's a lot of fun. It's very creative. It's a beautiful game. It, it looks really, really good on the Switch. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think I've played enough to like do a review, and we've got a lot of other stuff on the docket. Um, have you been playing any games, Sean? Yes, I um, picked up kind of on a whim, and then just partially off of like the pretty positive reception it had. I picked up the Outer Worlds, which is not Outer Wilds, yep. which also came out on PS4 around the same time that the Outer Worlds released on all the consoles. Which it was funny to have these two games that are very, very, very different, but have almost identical names. Um, so the Outer Worlds is a first-person kind of Fallout-esque RPG by Obsidian. The people who made Fallout New Vegas, 
um, as well as like Knights of the Old Republic 2 and a bunch of other RPGs like Alpha Protocol and that kind of stuff. Um, and it released earlier, um, like a couple of months or like about a month ago at this point. Um, and I've only had it for about a week, so I haven't played a huge amount. Uh, I'm like, my character's about level 10, so I think I'm maybe like a fourth of the way through the game or something. So enough to have impressions, but not enough to like do a deep dive on it. Um, and it's, it's an interesting game. I, if you enjoy the like Fallout 3, Fallout New Vegas, or even like Mass Effect or that kind of style of... Um, Western RPG, particularly from the 360 generation, I think like pick up Outer Worlds because it is one of those. And I hadn't realized that we had not had a one of those in a long time until I played this game. Because I think my like overall review of it so far is that I would not call it an extremely exceptional one of those, but because the only other <laughs> ones of those we've had this generation are like. Fallout 4 and Mass Effect Andromeda, and, and sort of The Witcher 3, but The Witcher 3 is kind of a different, a little bit of a different thing, because you don't have a party and that kind of stuff in that game. Um, this generation has just completely dropped the ball, mostly through the death of Bioware, um, on this entire sort of genre of game that was very, very popular and successful the last generation of consoles, where you had all three of the Mass Effects, you had a bunch of different Fallout games, um, and this time around... We've had Fallout 4, which is fine, but not great. We had Mass Effect Andromeda, which was a massive clusterfuck. And then there's not really been a whole lot else in this sort of bigger budget Western RPG, um, like exploration focused with um, multiple different companion characters and choice as a key component of the, the game design where there's lots of different dialogue options and depending on how you build out your character, if they're like really good with tech stuff or whatever, they can kind of solve problems in different ways. It's one of those kinds of Western RPGs. And I don't think it's like truly exceptional. I don't think it's as good as Fallout 3 or Fallout New Vegas. I certainly don't think it's as good as the Mass Effect games in terms of the writing and game design stuff. But it is an extremely sort of like comfortable game to play because you know exactly what it is after the first like five minutes. It is so clear that they are not looking to innovate on this structure. They're not looking to like make big changes. They're just entirely trying to make a one of those. And so it feels weirdly retro. Like it feels like a game from like 2009 or 2010, which is so it feels like about a, a game that fell out of a truck 10 years ago and you just sort of picked up somewhere. It's like, well, shit. This is, this is a one of those. Um, it has a an interesting setting that is Fallout-esque where you are in the future. Um, you're out in space uh, in the outer worlds. Um, so you're not on Earth. And the world has kind of been taken over by super capitalism. So mega corporations uh, kind of rule everything. And every colony you visit is more or less dominated by some sort of like space Walmart-esque kind of company. And it's a good idea that I think ends up kind of being the one thing about the game I don't love is I think the humor is a bit, bit too stilted and it's a bit too like on the nose in a lot of places with the kind of the jokes that they do are just kind of kind of like everything else in the game feel like they're 10 years old or something. Um, it doesn't feel very like modern. It doesn't feel particularly sharp in terms of the way that they're do using kind of satire to tackle um, themes about like capitalism gone wild. Um, they should have called the so game I, that. Capitalism gone yes. wild. <laughs> Yeah, 
So, so it, it's not like like I wouldn't say that it has like the most amazing writing of any game in the world, but it's been so long since I've played an RPG that allows me to sort of like walk around and have two companion characters that are goofy and fun, and you do missions for them to make them like you more, and you're talking to someone about like a, a different quest, and then your companion character like sort of chimes in. Um, it's like honestly the game I think about the most while playing this is is Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2 because it is almost more like those games than even the Fallout or Mass Effect kind of thing just in terms of like the way you talk to people the very stilted quality of like when dialogue cuts from one character to the other it always feels like all these none of these people have ever met each other in real life the voice actors have never met each other um the like People pronounce character names like one of your companions is named Parvati and everybody has a different way of pronouncing the name Parvati. Um, and it's just sort of it's it's funny the way that how old and like sort of archaic in some ways this game feels. Um, and so not in a way that that I think is bad, but also not in a way that makes me like want to champion the game super hard. But if you just want to play a game like that, that has like okay enough combat and it has a decent enough story and you just get to run around with your party members and have kind of a fun RPG time, that's just what The Outer Worlds is. It is a game that if it had come out in 2010, I think it would have been like completely forgotten by history. The fact that it came out in 2019 means that there are so many people on my Twitter feed that are talking about this game constantly and it kind of amuses me because I have I would hundred percent get why people are so like happy about having this game, even though nobody is being like this is the best game ever. But but man, we just didn't have one of these for so long, and and now we have one of these again. Yeah, being someone who like that was never my favorite genre of game. Like they're if they're really exceptional, like a Mass Effect, I can very much enjoy that. But otherwise, like. It's just not really... I don't like the Fallout games, for instance. I have not been compelled to check this one out. It's going to come to the Switch at some point, and I might play it there if it's a like downtime of the year when that eventually comes out. Um, but yeah, not quite my cup of tea, but I, I'm amused because I'm, I'm, I was pretty sure that's what you were going to say about it because that's pretty much what I've gotten is that like this is a sort of competent throwback but not anything particularly new so but it is interesting to hear because i know people love that kind of game and i'm glad you know they're getting their fix because if you love that kind of game this has been a really disappointing generation yeah because like i i never even touched mass effect andromeda like i completely skipped that whole mess so the last one of these i played i guess it would have been fallout 4 um that and then dragon age inquisition both of which came out at the very very beginning of this generation yeah um which I guess, like, in part of, like, what makes this game feel old, I think, is that The Witcher 3 came out, and The Witcher 3, like, completely... Stole everyone's kinda, like rev- Yeah. Yeah, and it just revolutionized the, like, concept of the choice-based open-world Western RPG, like, which was what that kind of genre had turned into um, in the previous generation. And this game just feels like a game that got made and nobody told them that The Witcher 3 happened, kind of, is what it feels like. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, before we move on to our next thing, Sean... I just got a knock at my door. I think I have a package. We're going to pause the recording for just a second, and I'm going to go grab it, because I think I know what it is, and we need to talk about this on the air. All right, so Sean, I just ran to my front door. I've got a package here. This is how big this fucking thing is. Let's see. This is... A great feature for an audio podcast is the audio-only unboxing. It is It is not a great feature, but you can tell the people that the box I just showed you wouldn't fit in the frame. That is true. It is a big box. All right. Uh, oh, it's a box within a box. 
It's just a metaphor for life, man. We're all just boxes and boxes and boxes. All right. But what's inside the boxes in a box? Gojira! Yep. I got there the... There it is. That's what I was hoping it would yep, be. Yep. The Godzilla... It's... Oh, my God. This thing is enormous, Sean. Okay. Yes. My my copy of the Criterion release of the Showa era of Godzilla is coming on Monday. Okay. So, I do not have mine yet. Yes. So, let's back up a second, Sean. Uh... Spine number 1000 of the Criterion Collection is here. It is the Godzilla Showa era films. And coinciding with that uh, is the November Criterion sale at Barnes & Noble. So if you don't know, if you live in the United States, Barnes & Noble... I guess you could import too. But if you live in the United States, Barnes & Noble through the month of November always does a giant Criterion Collection sale. And they do 50% off on all Criterion discs. So the Godzilla set is $112. Which is not bad at all for everything that is in this thing. I mean, 15 movies for that much, that's pretty great. A lot of these never available in this good of quality before. Um, I And then Amazon price matched it, which is how I got this so quick. I actually ordered it off Amazon, and they shipped it in one day for some reason. Because, um, you know, it was very important for me to get this Godzilla set on a Sunday, right? But anyway... So, yeah, we actually had this later on the outline, but why don't we just talk about it now since this... I did not think it was going to arrive during the podcast, but I thought it would be funny to talk about it arriving during the podcast. Sure, yeah, so... Yeah, so you've ordered oh this, boy. Sean. What other... I mean, let's just back up. The Criterion Collection, we've talked about them a lot. We love them. What experience do you have with Criterion, Sean? Um, it's mostly for me, it's, it's predominantly Japanese films. Yeah. So I own a bunch of Kurosawa movies through their Criterion releases. Um, Harakiri, um, one of the best movies ever made. That's a Criterion one I have. So yeah, like it from, and then obviously th- my main one is the Zatoichi box set, my pride and joy, the, the thing, the light of my life, all of my Zatoichi movies, um, which, which is basically the precursor to this box set. So the Zatoichi movie, it's like 25 movies for that one. Um, but they just said, fuck it, we're not going to do 25 movies on our spine number. We're just going to say, this is just one release of all these movies, um, with this beautiful, beautiful box set. Um, and, and it's one of like my favorite things that I own. And I'm happy to now have another one of those with the show at your Godzilla movies um, to put next to my Zatoichi movies. Sean, I'm showing you this fucking thing. I just opened it up and this is the page with all the discs. It's so big. I can't even get it in our fucking webcam frame. This is the tallest book I own. The Godzilla packaging is basically just this ginormous fucking book. It's like two feet tall. It's insane. I love it. I I mean, it makes sense that for the King of the Monsters, you would do the biggest, like, tallest box set ever made. Um, Damn. Criterion went all out for that one. Yep. So, yeah. So, for people who don't know, um, we did talk about it when it got announced, but just to sort of, like, recap it. Um, what this release is, is it is all the Showa-era Godzilla movies, which are basically the Godzilla movies from the 50s through the 70s. Um, so it's everything from the original Godzilla movie in 1954 through uh, Terror of Mechagodzilla, which is the last one of those movies, which came out in like 79, right around there. So it is a huge swath. It's got how many movies is it, Jonathan? It's, it's 15, like 15, it says on the back of the yeah. thing. Yeah. So it's 15 movies. Um, like encompassing a huge swath of different sort of subgenres of Godzilla movie from the very, very harsh, serious original movie to the incredibly silly later ones like Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, Godzilla versus Gigant that are just like utterly absurd. Godzilla versus Megalon, um, completely ridiculous, over the top nonsense films and then kind of everything in between. 
Um, and it's an, a really valuable release because those movies, most of those movies have been released um, in different kinds of DVD or Blu-ray formats. Um, but they are all like incredibly scattershot. Some of them, like my one of my personal favorites, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, had been out of print for years and years and years and years and years. And most of those releases were like, oh, this one only has the English dub on it, or the, you know, this one like the the video quality is utter complete shit because they didn't do anything to kind of make it look better. Um, and for a lot of these movies, you want to have the multiple different versions that exist because the English dubs were different cuts of the movie entirely and that kind of stuff. So it was incredibly scattershot what you're going to get if you picked up these movies. So Criterion deciding, let's get these all in-house, let's build a big thing, get like the best versions of these movies we can and, and give you all the options if you want to watch the weird American versions of the movies you can. Um, and just getting that all out there in a beautiful box set, it is amazing and perfect and it's it's i'm very excited to get it tomorrow <laughs> yes so i mean it's awesome i think we will be doing a fuller review on this show obviously because you're a godzilla maniac and what i'm yep. excited about is i'm kind of a godzilla newbie and part of why i have not dived into a lot of these films is they're just it took so much effort to find them you know and yeah. and i unlike you did not sort of watch them as a kid and kind of have that baseline so now i just have this convenient box set and it's all there uh, so, Sean, I was saying, I have on the outline here, I think something we should do now that the set's out is aim for, like, near the end of the month, maybe theme this around even, like, your birthday at the end of the month as a birthday podcast, is um, you should pick, I don't think we could watch all 15 that quickly, but, like, pick... No, a, that would, I would definitely not be able to watch, I mean, I've already seen them all, but yeah. I would not be able to rewatch all 15 <laughs> in, yes. in one month. But pick a couple of significant ones, like, not the first movie yeah. we've done whole podcasts on that one, but, like... Like, pick a couple that you know I haven't seen and, like, that could be themed, and we should do an episode on that and then kind of review the whole box set around that. I think that would be fun, and we can take a couple of weeks to work on that, and it would be... I think that's something we should do. Yes, I already have a couple of ideas. Obviously, the long-awaited day will come now that we can we can do our Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla podcast, a thing I've wanted to do since, like, 2014 or something yes. for a very long time now. Um it's it's a good you know it's it, we've got weekly suit gundam so we're doing gundam now we can do godzilla it's all coming up sean it, on this podcast it really is uh it's great so but within this also um because november is an entire month of sales on the criterion collection i wanted to talk about criterion for just a little bit because i love the work they do i own a shit ton of criterion i own at least a hundred spines um, so over a tenth of the connect collection at this point, since there's a thousand spines as of right now with Godzilla. Um, so I own a lot of the collection and I thought I could give people maybe some recommendations for things to look for through November if they want to start maybe building a collection or just dip their toes in the water. So I was going to do a top 10. I could not possibly narrow it down to 10. So I have a top 15. They are not ordered in any way other than I just went by spine number. So each criterion has a spine basically based on the order the releases were put out in. Um, and I thought I would just go through some of these. And what I was trying to make here, it, this is not a list of the best movies in the collection. It's like additions that I specifically think people would enjoy. And if you want to like get into Criterion, these are ones that I think you would really benefit from getting, okay? And I also limited it to one per director. So there are some major directors that I wanted to, like, find what is, like, the best release of theirs that I think people should own. Cool. So I'm going to go through these kind of quickly, but let's start, Sean. This is, the, this is the one that just every Criterion 
like collection should have because it's not the very first one but it's the first one that fucking matters and it is the one that like it was the first one i ever bought i think it's the first one a lot of people ever bought and that is spine number two seven samurai by akira kurosawa it's one of the best movies ever made it's kind of in many ways the defining criterion collection film especially if you are a fan of the japanese side of the criterion collection it's still a fully definitive set on dvd or blu-ray uh and every like no home video collection should be without it right Absolutely, yeah. It's the first Criterion movie I had. Like, I got that when I was, like, a junior in high school, I think. Yep. Um, so, yes. Everybody get that. Spine number 62 is The Passion of Joan of Arc from 1928 by Carl Theodore Dreyer. Gun to my head, if you asked me what is, in your most objective film scholar opinion, the best movie ever made, I very well might go with The Passion of Joan of Arc. It is, it is as good as cinema gets. It's a late, silent film. This is the newer edition that is now out on DVD and Blu-ray where they have the film at two different frame rate presentations, 20 and 24, because silent films ran, um, there was no one like prescribed frame rate, so it's got two versions of it, it's got three different scores, everything, all of just a shit ton of extras, a giant booklet, um, and you can get it for $20 in November, every collection should have this one too. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you seen that one, Sean? Um, yes, I have. I don't have the Criterion version, but yeah. I think I watched that when I had when Filmstruck was still a thing. Yep, I watched that. Yeah, once. and I should say most of these are also streaming on the Criterion channel, the Filmstruck replacement service, and that's a great service. I was also trying to pick ones that like. There are some movies that like uh, for one, for instance, one that is not on here, Sean, is Harakiri, which we both love and is a great movie. You can get that on the Criterion channel. That release is kind of bare bones; it doesn't have a ton of extras, so like it's not yeah. one that I felt like is a must own. The movie is a must watch, but you can get that in quite a few places now. Um, so, spine number eighty-four. I had to pick one Ozu. You all know Yas. Well, I don't know if everyone knows this. Yasujiro Ozu, uh, Japanese director, I think is the best director who ever lived. Um, I have every Criterion release of his, and I now, my shelf of Criterion Ozus is too big for the shelf, because they put out one more this year, and it finally, like, overloaded my shelf for Ozu. But I would recommend, if I was going to pick just one Ozu, I would pick Spine number 84, which is Good Morning, which is a 1959 color comedy he made. That is definitely a crowd pleaser. I think it's a great introductory Ozu. But the really cool thing about this release is there's another film on it. The 1932 silent film, I Was Born But, which is an absolute masterpiece. And uh, it's just a great movie. It, it's Some people say Good Morning is a remake of it. That's not true. Good Morning is has some things that it kind of borrows from I Was Born But. But they go together really well, and you get both films in this set, plus the surviving fragment of his 1929 silent film, A Straightforward Boy. So you sort of get two and a half Ozu films for the price of one, uh, plus a bunch of good bonuses. So everyone should buy Good Morning. Spine, awesome. yes, spine number 309 is Yugetsu, the Kenji Mizoguchi one. You've seen this, right, Sean? Yes, yeah, I have this one. It's so good. Uh, Sancho the Byleth is my favorite Mizoguchi film, and that Criterion Edition is also really good. But this one gets the edge for me because it includes a full, like, two-hour feature-length documentary on the life of Kenji Mizoguchi, a giant documentary on Ugetsu, video essays, interviews, and most importantly has a giant-ass book that's like 100 pages with translations of all the short stories Mizoguchi drew upon to make the film. And it's got one of the single best Criterion covers. So Ugetsu is just like an obvious people should own that one. Yep. Jumping ahead, 300 spines. 
We go to spine number 615. I had to pick a Charlie Chaplin one because they have a ton of great Charlie Chaplin. They've got almost all his features now. But I would pick The Gold Rush from 1925. Uh, The Gold Rush is one of my favorite Chaplins. And what's really cool about this edition is that you get two versions of the film. You get the 1925 silent version, which was for a really long time thought lost. And there was just this huge heroic restoration to put it back together. And so it exists again. And they created a score for it based on what Charlie Chaplin composed for the later sound version of the film which he re-edited in 1942 and that was the version that was long available which is a shorter version of the movie where he's added a score and a voiceover narration and I don't love that version of the movie but it's cool to have and and this was the first time both were available on home video and you get a bunch of other stuff and everyone should own at least one Chaplin. Chaplin's great. Similarly David Lynch is now a part of the Criterion Collection, which I love. And there's a lot of great Lynch films you could choose. But I think the one I would get is Eraserhead. Because that edition has just an incredible, like, mammoth A-plus restoration. It's got a shit ton of interviews with Lynch and other people. And most importantly, it's got basically a comprehensive collection of all of Lynch's short films from three different decades. And that just makes it really, really cool to have. Because Blue Velvet and Firewalk With Me are also in the Criterion Collection, but you can get those films elsewhere in similar quality. Um, And the Mulholland Drive Criterion Collection edition is also really good and comes close for me. But that Eraserhead one, if you like Lynch, is kind of a must-own. Yep. Spine number 782 is the uh, the Apu trilogy. I've talked about these before. These were on my top ten films of all time list. These are three films by Satyajit Ray, the pioneering Indian film director. Uh, Pather Panchali, Aparajito, and Apur Sansar. This is also, this is the most heroic restoration Criterion has ever undertaken. They would tell you that themselves. These movies um, were basically, they were brought to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the negatives for preservation. There was a fire. The negatives were thought lost. And Criterion basically in-house, this is one of their in-house restorations, not done like in Italy or something, which a lot of them are by the, by like Scorsese's foundation. This one was done in-house and they basically went around the world to find, you know, all the elements they could to bring these movies back to life. And it is the coolest thing Criterion has ever done on a film preservation level, because they are also three of the greatest movies ever made. So, also a must-own. And they're on, and or must-stream, however you want to get them. Uh, spine number 825, this is the only one that's on here just because I love the fucking movie so much, and that's A Touch of Zen by King Hu. Um, it, great movie. The extras aren't super plentiful, but they're pretty good, and it's one of the best movies ever made. And, I, like, it had never been out in the West before Criterion put this out. Um, we love King Who here at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. Fuck yeah. This is a great movie. Spy number 826 is, uh, I had to pick a Terrence Malick movie, because Terrence Malick is now a big part of the collection. He's, like, probably my favorite American director, at least people who are alive. And I would pick the movie The New World from 2005. This is his epic about... It's sort of based on the Pocahontas story, is what you could say. It's a, it's a sort of founding story of, of American mythology. Um, and what they did here is there are three full different cuts of the movie that had been made over the years, including one cut that had never been uh, available outside of theaters, a shit ton of new interviews with all the key players, extended version of this making of documentary that was on the original DVD, a big piece on the film's editing, and some of the most beautiful packaging Criterion has ever done. The New World is like maybe the best or second best movie of its decade. So 
definitely get that one uh and all the cuts it's it's great i would recommend the extended cut which is three hours but you can start smaller if you want with the shorter cuts on there Spine number 837 is Krzysztof Kieslowski's 10-hour project, The Decalogue, uh, which for years was uh, Criterion's website used to have this part called My Criterion where you built your own profile. Um, And one of the things you would insert there is you would say your most wanted title, like the thing you most wanted in the Criterion collection. And for years, I put Decalogue in there and I thought it was a total pipe dream. I thought no one would ever do the Decalogue. Now we have it. And I'm amazed, and it's a great addition. Uh, and now I have put in another pipe dream title, which is Wong Kar Wai's Days of Being Wild. And I'm really hoping that magic happens twice. But yes, uh, great movie. Great. Well, it's, it's ten movies, but great ten movies you can buy for a very expensive edition. My number one recommendation, if I were ranking these, would be Spine number 873. And that is a box set called Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project Number 2. This is my favorite Criterion release of all time. Um... The Martin Scorsese World Cinema Project is a foundation. It's called the Film Foundation that Martin Scorsese founded many years ago, and it is basically about preserving world cinema. And a lot of what his foundation has preserved and saved, uh, Criterion has put out, including in two box sets where they just collected sort of six films apiece that he had done. The second one blew me away. It's six films that... They're not related really in any way, but they are a fascinating set of films to watch together, and I think they are six of the best films in the collection, and ones that, uh, for most of them, I don't think you would have heard of outside of the Criterion Collection. Um, So things like Apichatpong, We Are Also at the Cool's first film, Mysterious Object at Noon, which is incredible. There's a 1989 Russian-Korean film called Revenge, which is one of the best movies I've ever seen. A 1931 silent avant-garde feature called Limice, which is legendary. Um, And maybe most significantly, Edward Yang's debut feature, Taipei Story, 1985 from Taiwan, which is um, another, like, contender for one of the best movies ever made. So this is an incredible set. And like kind of most defines for me the Criterion Collection's mission in that no one else would put these out in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they got a beautiful release. Spine number 897, just for fun, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. Have you seen Barry Lyndon, Sean? No, I keep on meaning to get around to it, but, you know, yes. it's a long movie. It is. It's, <laughs> so it's, 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 you need to clear your schedule to watch Barry Lyndon. You do. It's three hours long, but I would, maybe, Sean, this is one I would recommend to you in the, in the November sale, uh, because it's a, it's a two-disker for one movie, which is very rare from Criterion these days. It's got so many extras, they had to spread it across two Blu-ray discs. Um, and a beautiful restoration of this movie, which I think is Stanley Kubrick's best movie. I love Barry Lyndon. I am pro... Like, Barry Lyndon is a bizarre fucking movie, but I am very pro Barry Lyndon. Um, And they just... They did such heroic effort on this, because this movie had always kind of been ignored by Warner Brothers. Like, they would put it out, but they would do kind of the bare minimum, and Criterion, like... Basically every extra for this thing they had to create whole cloth because there had never been extras for Barry Lyndon and it's such a good movie. So I would recommend that. As a crowd pleaser, this is just one I know every listener of this podcast would enjoy is Spine number 948, which is The Princess Bride, which came out on Criterion last year. Who doesn't like The Princess Bride, Sean? Nobody. No. It's, it's like the most crowd pleaser movie ever made, basically. It is. And this is like... 
the most crowd-pleaser edition. And I love that Criterion, this isn't the kind of movie you think of when you think of Criterion, but I love that they can also just embrace a popular cult classic and say, you know what, this is an important part of the canon. And it's such a playful, loving release because they the whole release is housed in kind of a small version of what they did for Godzilla, a little book, and it opens kind of like a storybook, and it's got all these illustrations. Um, smorgasbord of extras, really beautiful transfer of that movie. Um, and just, yeah, that's one that no collection should be without. And finally, Spine number 971, which is the very recent release of Police Story 1 and 2 by Jackie Chan, which are great movies that you could get before Criterion, but you couldn't get looking good. And now you can get yeah, them... exactly. Now you can get them looking and sounding good. You've got two cuts of Police Story 2, including the Hong Kong cut, which I don't think had ever been out here. Um, you've got, uh, like, the original English dubs plus Japanese audio. You've got a r- bunch of really fun extras, including an hour-long documentary just about Jackie Chan doing stunts. Um... Really great packaging. Already one of my favorites ever, and it's pretty new. And finally, uh, one that people don't, I think, know much about, but is one of my very favorite releases they've ever done, is the Eclipse series, which is a DVD-only line they do of box sets. And I would recommend Eclipse Series 15, which is called Travels with Hiroshi Shimizu. I actually have it on my desk because I'm writing a paper on it. Um, this This is quite a few years old, but Hiroshi Shimizu is sort of a forgotten Japanese director. Many of his films no longer exist. Japanese film preservation uh, is not that great. Um, But in the late 2000s, the uh, Shochiku did an effort to try to restore a good number of his films and put those out in Japan. And Criterion took four of those and put those out here in this set. And they're four of the most amazing films I've ever seen. Um... Hiroshi Shimizu would take his camera out on the road, basically, which no one else in Japan was doing at the time, and do all location photography. So, like, you get a bunch of pre-war Yokohama footage, and you get a bunch of pre-war Japanese countryside. Like, locations that would be literally forever changed in the years after this was captured, and there's just not a lot of photography of it. So they are essential documents. Um, He was a contemporary of Ozu. They were friends, somewhat similar sensibilities. It is one of my favorite things I own. I love these movies. I think they're on the Criterion channel as well, so at least give them a watch. There's a movie called Mr. Thank You that is one of those films I can't imagine anyone disliking. It's so good and open-hearted and big-hearted. So, yeah, I think that's a wide range. I tried to include both just normal-priced, you know, additions, some big box sets, a little bit of everything. Um, I hope that helps anyone who wants to kind of get into the Criterion Collection because it will hurt your wallet, but you'll get to see some great movies. (laughs) And once again, I just have to stand for Zatoichi. Yes. Like, if if you want the best bang for your buck in Criterion... It's like it's it's you know it's a big initial investment, but you get a lot of stuff for it. Yes, because it's it's about like a hundred dollars if you get it on sale. It is, and I ha- and you get twenty five movies out of it. So yeah, <laughs> you get a lot of you get a lot of, and they're almost all amazing. Then there's no bad ones. Um, there's only there's a couple that are like ah eh, this is okay. Um, but there's probably about like eight of those movies that I think are just like all time classic, amazing, um, like Japanese samurai chanbara movies. Um, so if you like that genre and you have not seen Zatoichi you are missing out on like the best movies in that genre basically yeah I and and I don't own it yet it's like the biggest hole in my Criterion collection and it's because every time there's a sale I want to buy more than I can and Zatoichi is the expensive one I'm gonna get it I might even just 
fucking pull out my credit card and get it this month just so I can finally have it. Um, like Godzilla was my priority because it's new, but at some point I still need to get that Zatoichi set. And yeah, it's ninety nine dollars. As their big box sets go, it's pretty cheap. I mean, twenty six movies for ninety nine bucks plus extras and booklets and all that. That's not like that's such a good price. It's hard to complain, right? Exactly. It's it's. They're so good. It's a great box set. Watch Zatoichi. And it, love Zatoichi. And if, be Zatoichi. And if we all buy it, maybe one day they'll do the TV show. That would be the coolest oh fucking thing. <laughs> that, would, that would be the thing that if, uh, with my, my criterion. It's just like the Zatoichi TV show copy and pasted a million times. Just like get yes. it. To do something with it, please. Because I have the only um, releases of that movie over here. which is Or those that TV show over here, which is only like 15 episodes or so. And it's so good. And god damn it, there's like a hundred episodes of that TV show. And if it's as good as like the sampling that I have, it's like one of the best TV shows ever made. Yeah. So anyway, we love you, Criterion. Uh, Thank you. for And a thousand spines. How cool is it that in, in the age, Sean, of like physical media on the decline, I think in the streaming age, a lack of respect and sensibility for classic cinema, that Criterion is still going so strong that they could do this fucking Godzilla set. That is so cool. I'm I, Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's I'm I'm so excited to get that I'd like I'm gonna spend like literally hours just putting in every single disc once I get that set to do like I'm not gonna be able to watch all the movies, but I'll spend like the length of a movie just seeing what all the features are and like looking at all the different like um, audio tracks and shit, and and just basking in the glory of having a good-looking version of Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. I am looking forward to, because it will not fit on a normal shelf, putting this like on top of my bookcase, and then putting the original Godzilla Criterion release right next to it, so you have like little Godzilla, big Godzilla. Exactly. <laughs> or maybe from now on, I'll just display my original Criterion Godzilla set open with the big pop-up. Do you remember how they did that? Yes. It's such a good... Like, now it's kind of a moot point. I would recommend you just buy the full box set. But, like, that that's that was, I think, my favorite Criterion packaging before this, was just the pop-up Godzilla on that when you folded it out. All right. So, Sean, for our last piece of stuff today, I have, I have a story I want to tell. I'm going to save that for the end of the podcast. It says... I'll okay. just give you a preview. It says the story of the demon couch from hell. That will be coming later, because I think we'll need... Just something to end the show with. But for now, let's end the stuff portion. And this will also give us a kick into the main topic. There was a Twitter kind of game, Twitter thread going around this week where someone said, if you were to make your own Star Wars film, what three movies would you use as touchstones? So, like, what three movies would you give as an example of, like, my movie would kind of be inspired by these three movies? Um, And we both answered that because it was kind of a fun thought experiment. So I thought we would just... Tell people what that was and our reasoning for yeah. it. Do you want to start, Sean? Sure, yes. So um, mine, my number one, like the core fundamental inspiration. Stop me if you've heard this one from me before. Zatoichi. It's real fucking good. <laughs> and, you know, so much of Star Wars comes from a Japanese cinema inspiration. And and some of that, like the sword fighting in the old movies has a sort of Chandra feel to it. Um, so like Zatoichi, a wandering Jedi um, and for me, any future Star Wars thing, I only really care if they move to some time period where you can just have lots of different Force users, because I'm very, very tired of there's, like, two people in the whole galaxy that can use a lightsaber to use the Force, and it's, like, that's just kind of a boring setting at some point. So, like, having, you know, basically Jedi and Sith be like samurai 
in that they're like special and how and are powerful within the society they exist in but there's not only two of them there are hundreds of them right so that's like the basic foundation of the movie um and then i would want some of the sort of fun and humor and and maybe a little bit like the pacing of the princess bride um is another big one for me that i think star wars should always be like heavily accessible to a child audience and so like like that element of the princess bride is something i i would i would want to kind of infuse in there um and then my other one is mobile suit gundam char's counterattack um for mostly for like the weird new type stuff um because we're both in agreement jonathan that that new type stuff is better than force stuff in terms of execution like nine times out of ten yes and so getting the like the new typey element of the force in there and then also i really like in star wars having the sort of gundam-esque rival thing um which lots of star wars movies don't actually do that much but it's pretty common in more like ancillary star wars fiction and i like the idea of having a like light side character and a dark side character jedi and sith or whatever um acting as rivals structurally in the way that amro and char act as rivals both in that movie and then in the the gundam series as a whole um and having like kind of that like two protagonist structure which is also very similar to lots of zatoichi movies that have that kind of structure as well um and so that's for me that's my like you know that's my stew or whatever i would make for star wars is putting all three of those elements together to make a very badass cool fun rivalry focused samurai style movie in a world of star wars that has lots of different force users awesome Mine is pretty similar because you and I have similar sensibilities on this. Uh, so I went, my touchstone, I think, for like sort of story is I would pick, these are all from our Criterion thing, um, is King Who's A Touch of Zen. I want my Wuxia Star Wars movie, which is to mm-hmm. say like, you know, Chinese martial arts epic, um, swordplay epic specifically. And Star Wars just like the the main thing like King Hu does in a lot of his movies, Zhang Yimou does this in some of his, is the Wuxia tradition where you have like the the knight errant somewhere and you also have the warrior princess who has been like deposed or is away from her kingdom and is trying to get back to her kingdom. That's what I want. Like I basically I want a Star Wars story where like Leia from episode four would be the main character, not the damsel, you know? Mm-hmm. And I want her to have a sword and it be kind of a touch of Zen-esque. And I also just want it to get fucking weird in places. So I want that. Then I want Laputa, Castle in the Sky, the Miyazaki movie, which is one of my favorite Miyazakis and I think is his best just like pure adventure film. Um, and is I think basically I want that for sort of the tone and character dynamics where like probably have a good like a boy character and a girl character who it's not romantic but it is but it's like a, a close friendship and they team up and they're both sort of co-protagonists so and if you mix this with a touch of zen you would have to have your knight errant and your warrior princess and they'd come together um, and there would be some kind of mysterious story and you'd have bad guys but maybe some of the bad guys also aren't that bad and you can become friends with them by the end and it can be really fun and imaginative but also kind of harrowing in places and finally i also picked a gundam i picked mobile suit gundam 3 encounters in space this is the third compilation movie of the original uh show mainly because i think that film does the weird new type stuff better than any other single piece of gundam and so Mm -hmm. i want if i want the force to be like new type stuff i would look to that movie for a kind of guidance and inspiration so that's my specific star wars too yeah, I like that. There, our our stews very our stews are very similar. 
Um, but I think the, the where they differ is I think for it's mostly the touch of Zin and Zatoichi are similar in some ways, but different in others. Yes. I feel like that's where the differences in our list come about. Uh, come about. Yeah. So Sean, I uh, I haven't talked to you about this before, but one I I keep you know kind of a running list of topic ideas, and in my notes I wrote this down a couple months ago. Because uh, Jenny Nicholson, who's a YouTuber I really like, who talks about Star Wars a lot, had a funny like tweet thread where she was like fake pitching her own Star Wars trilogy. It was at the time when like I don't know we were all talking about how everyone was getting a fucking Star Wars trilogy over at Disney. Now no one has a uh-huh. Star Wars trilogy. We'll talk about that later. Um, and I I wrote kind of down in my notes. I'm like Sean and I should each pitch a Star Wars trilogy. So I think for December, like like for the week before Rise of Skywalker comes out. We should just do a fun kickback episode where you and I both bring a pitch for a Star Wars trilogy. And I, I know this would basically be fanfic, but it would be funny, I think. And we should try that. I'm, I'm game for it. Yeah. Like, honestly, that probably wouldn't take me very long to do because I've been thinking about it the entire my entire life. Exactly. What, what, would, what would I do if you gave me Star Wars? I would make it good. Yes. Step one, make it good. Yes. Um, step one, I would hire another white guy who's unqualified and then fire him five months later just for fun, I guess, because that's the strategy over at Lucasfilm. Yeah, and then then step two, make inexplicable cameo of Darth Maul at the end of the movie. <laughs> what is still the strangest thing ever to have occurred in a Hollywood blockbuster is the cameo of Darth Maul at the end of Solo, um, a Star Wars story, a thing I think about literally every single week since I watched that movie. I hope The Mandalorian is really great and we all love it. And then in the final episode, they do a random Darth Maul cameo. Which would be very confusing because that one's set after Return of the Jedi. Yes. <laughs> it's like, man, how many times are they going to bring this, father, this motherfucker back? All right. God damn it. Speaking of Star Wars, you want to do some news, Sean? Oh, yeah. What's going on in the news, Jonathan? Well, Star Wars leads the news this week for the stupid... I mean, let's be honest. People getting impeached and whatnot leads the world news. Our stupid news is led by Star Wars this week, um, yep. where David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the creators of Game of Thrones, maybe also the ruiners of Game of Thrones, uh, they were planning, they, were, they had a deal to create the next theatrical Star Wars project after Episode Nine. The first one of those would have come out in 2022, and we learned this week that that project is dead, and Benioff and Weiss are off of Star Wars important context is that after making that star wars deal last year benioff and weiss also earlier this year inked an overall development deal with netflix valued at 200 million dollars for the two of them so they literally had two massive obligations they couldn't possibly have fulfilled at the same time and one of them had to go Later reporting investigating the series of events that led to this indicated this had either broken down months ago or at least had been a long time coming. Um, So this is not because of the funny Twitter thread we read last week, but it is also pretty funny that this happened right after the weird Twitter thread. Yeah, like I saw a lot of people immediately like knee-jerking to, oh, it's because of the, like last season of Game of Thrones and all that stuff, and, and that always seemed... Like a silly, like I, it's a fun conclusion to come to that seemed very unrealistic with the way that these things work. Um, so yeah, it seems like this is something that had basically happened a while ago, and the announcement just happened now. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, it's g- good, good. Keep them away from Star Wars because you know we're just about to sort of exit out of um, what I think is like this weird hole they dug themselves into with the sequel trilogy. That was like poorly managed, and so 
Like, I have very little faith for a number of reasons in The Rise of Skywalker. And so coming out of that, like, I want... I want to have, be hopeful about the future of Star Wars movies, and I would not be if the the two guys who to you know crashed Game of Thrones into the muck were the next like up at bat. Like I just would be very depressed. So th- th- this opening that up and being like, okay, there's a chance now, um, in a way that felt like there was not much of a chance with Benioff and Weiss doing Star Wars for Star Wars to be good in the movie theater. Uh, that makes me happy. It does. But also, Sean. Uh-huh. Yeah, what, also. What the fuck is going on at Lucasfilm? Because, like, here's the thing. There are sort of two sides to the internet discourse on this that I think go too far. There's the side that is just like, Kathleen Kennedy is an idiot and shouldn't do Star Wars. And I would never say that because I don't know Kathleen Kennedy and I don't know the whole situation. And I know she is not solely responsible for every decision being made on Star Wars. And she is also... And that she has this like legacy of a career that is like unparalleled in many ways yes. in Hollywood as a producer. And so, yeah, just saying, oh, she's bad as being a producer is a factually incorrect statement just based on her, her track record yes. historically. But I also think there's the flip side of that argument, which is people on Twitter saying, because of Kathleen Kennedy's legacy, we can't say anything bad. We're all idiots for questioning it. Lucasfilm is fine. This happens. But no. Like, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I don't know whose fault it is, but it is just objectively true from the outside that Lucasfilm is a shit show. How is there any way not to argue that, Sean, when you have had more directors fired in five years than they have made movies? And it's, it's not like they were bringing on people who had, like, never worked on a movie and it was behind the scenes and we never heard about it. It's, it's these big, high-profile hires of up-and-coming talent... And then these big, high-profile meltdowns, sometimes on the set of the movie. And sometimes it's because the talent probably wasn't ready to make a movie that big. And sometimes it's because the producers of the movie, whether that's Kathleen Kennedy or Alan Horn or whoever else at Disney, didn't like what they were doing. And there was a breakdown in communication, all of which is bad. Like, it's hilarious. They have made, with Rise of Skywalker, five movies. Two of those, they fired the directors on. Rogue One, they fired Gareth Edwards after principal photography, and that movie was finished by um, Tony Gilroy. Yep. And then Solo, even more high profile, midway through production, they fired Lord and Miller, and they brought on Ron Howard. Firing Lord and Miller, by the way, because they were making it kind of a comedy, even though they hired two of Hollywood's most well-known comedy directors. So, like, mm-hmm. that's a shit show. Um J.J. Abrams' episode 7 and Ryan Johnson's episode 8 apparently went fully smoothly. There were no problems there. But then episode 9, of course, they had Colin Trevorrow, which was a bad hire from the very beginning because Jurassic World was a fucking trash fire of a movie. That didn't work. They had to fire him. Last minute, bring on J.J. Abrams, and J.J. Abrams had to rush this movie out the door. Apparently, everything went fine on it because we're not hearing about any behind-the-scenes drama. J.J. Abrams is an experienced filmmaker. He knows what he's doing. But, like... Not an optimal way to make a movie. In the meantime, they also hired uh, Josh Trank to make the Boba Fett movie that went nowhere because Josh Trank flamed out incredibly badly on Fantastic Four and some other things. And there's probably... I think I'm forgetting about one at some point. They've, They've hired and fired so many people. And now the Benioff and Weiss thing. So, like, to me what it reveals is that Disney bought Star Wars... Because it's Star Wars and it's popular. Not because they had any vision of what it could be. This was not like when they acquired Marvel, 
They acquired Marvel just before Avengers came out. So Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios had already independently inked the blueprint and started putting the pieces in place for what Marvel would become. And Disney said, that's an interesting thing, bought Marvel and said, do more of what you're doing. And everything was in place for that. For Star Wars, it was a dormant, dead franchise, at least on screen, that they bought because it's a big title and then thought, well, what do we do? I, I don't know what Kathleen Kennedy's like and, and other Lucasfilm management's relation to Star Wars is, but it does not seem to me to be like a Kevin Feige position where the, where these people like lived and breathed Star Wars their entire lives and had like a pool of ideas that they wanted to draw upon, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of just been like, well, people liked the original trilogy. Let's do that again. Let's do that again. Or like people liked Han Solo. Let's, let's do that again. Or people liked the Death Star. Okay, okay, yeah, let's do more of that. More Death Star. Like, that's kind of all we've gotten. except And with, like, the giant exception of, of The Last Jedi, which I really can't believe exists in the form it does, given all we have learned about Lucasfilm. But, like, it's a shit show. There's no other way to argue it's not a shit show, and it's fucking hilarious. And, and people are going, I think, too far on both sides of this argument in arguing, like, it's a shit show because we don't like women running things, which is the underlining of a lot of twitter comments or it's not a shit show shut up and accept your corporate overlords which is the other like underlining of the other position but it's a shit show yeah no it is it is i mean the history of this podcast in many ways has been the history of like documenting the incredible repeated fuck-ups of lucas arts at disney and um dc at warner brothers and like these two movie franchises that have just in their own special ways completely fucked up at at almost every single turn with like wonder woman and the last jedi being the two notable exceptions of like somehow a good movie got made um in, in this like sea of just sort of incompetence and weird just like this weird grinder that they're throwing directors and writers into and just trying to figure out some kind of movie to be made, but not liking the results of anything. Uh, it, it is really peculiar, especially because you do have like next door. Marvel has been just humming along really pretty. Like the only, like they've, they've only had in a much longer span of time, two notable examples of something kind of like this, which is Edgar Wright on Ant-Man way back in the day. And then James Gunn with the weird that shit with Guardians of the Galaxy, which they have now reversed to have him do Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And that's it amid like a, a significantly longer period of time in much, 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 much more movies. Um, so it is having like a very small number of movies and only having two that seem to have gone fine. And then maybe three now with The Rise of Skywalker in terms of at least production stuff. Um, and then everything else, even movies that get released in really compromised formats like Solo and Rogue One, like Rogue One, a movie that feels like half complete um, as far as I'm concerned in terms of the way it handles its characters and stuff like that. You can tell watching that movie that it got gutted in weird ways and the creative direction had to shift dramatically and that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, and then a bunch of abandoned projects, some of which fairly high profile. Um, it's It's a really peculiar situation especially because it feels like star wars should be a fairly like easily set up home run for somebody like even if you just want to play it safe and do the original trilogy stuff 
you probably could have done that and been fine with it. I don't think it would have like set the world on fire and it wouldn't be a good way to try to grow the Star Wars brand, but it would have been stable. But they just don't even seem to understand how to mine the nostalgia in a like safe way. And they just like are flailing all over the place. Um, it's a really strange scenario that I'm hoping that Benioff and Weiss getting booted... Like, as far as we know, Ryan Johnson is still making his movies. Like, he recently said in an interview that that, like, that is a process that is ongoing. Yes. So I'm nervous about whether or not that is something that's actually going to see fruition. But that feels like the best bet we have is Ryan Johnson getting to make his own movies, hopefully in his own way. That seems like a thing that could rejuvenate Star Wars. Um, and, and hopefully that's what's happening. But, but all this stuff... There was a moment where I was like very, very cynical about the Ryan Johnson stuff, and then he came out in an interview and said that he's still working on the movies, which like makes me more hopeful. But I think there's a significant chance that that's something that's not going to see the light of day. The fact that we haven't like heard anything more concrete about it, other than just like, yeah, no, we're still doing it, um, makes me concerned about the, the the Ryan Johnson movies as well. Yeah, I mean, for context on Ryan Johnson, so he made The Last Jedi. And then he went off and made a movie called Knives Out, which is coming out this month. Um, and it's been playing at festivals. It's very acclaimed. It looks amazing. It's uh, it's basically like a modern Agatha Christie sort of thing with mm-hmm. Daniel Craig. Um, maybe per- Poirot is, is a is – a, well, Poirot is Agatha Christie, yeah. So kind of yes. like he's, he's kind of like that kind of figure, only Southern. Um, it looks awesome. I'm really excited for that movie. But he went off and made that. And so, like, Star Wars was never the next thing up on the docket for him. Like, that's important to understand. He was always going to take a step back. And, like, that's why he didn't do Episode Nine. He was asked to do Episode Nine. That's come out. Like, he was their first ask to do it when the Colin Trevorrow thing fell apart. And I think he was pretty adamant. Like, I just made this giant movie, The Last Jedi. It was really tiring. I'd like to go do something else. So they let him go do something else. Um... So at all the like press events for Knives Out, he's been asked about this, and he said every time, we're working on it. Um, I don't know what's going on. I wouldn't be too cynical, because this, this was always, like, he was never going right into another Star Wars. So, like, right. the fact that they cancel every fucking thing they make at Lucasfilm would worry me, but, like, overall, if he says he's doing it, I, I generally believe him, but I also think if he suggest something you know too far out there then they might just say no this doesn't have you know gungans in it or something i don't know whatever they fucking want it's so weird um and it is the funniest thing when you when marvel is right next door and like love or hate the marvel movies the Marvel movies are really good at doing what they want to do. They're obviously very good at attracting an audience. They have a very like stable critical foundation. They like their movies don't get bad reviews. Sometimes they don't get great reviews, but they're always somewhere in the middle there. Um, they're they're always well received, you know. And like Kevin Feige clearly has a like central vision for what the overall layout is going to be, and it's got that kind of centrality of voice and vision to it that Star Wars had once upon a time with George Lucas because Star Wars was, I think, a more auteur-driven thing than we all realized um, when you take George Lucas out of it. But then you take George Lucas out, you put other people in who have not been working on Star Wars their whole lives, and it's kind of floundering because I don't think there's any clear sense of what... Like, there, it does not feel to me, and this is the missing piece, is there's not somebody you can point to in Star Wars right now and say, that's the vision, that's the person offering the North Star, this is what we're aiming for. 
There's none of that. And clearly, like, not even in their main ongoing trilogy that is serialized, there's not that. Because we already know that Abrams and Johnson come from, I think, pretty different views on what Star Wars is. So that's crazy to me. I I think the smartest thing to do for them would be take pitches and just make the most interesting pitch, right? Like... Like, what is the boldest, most original Star Wars pitch from someone with a proven track record? Stop hiring these fucking yuppies like Josh Trank and Benioff and Weiss who don't know how to make a fucking... Like, Benioff and Weiss have never directed a movie. What are you... Like, that's stupid. Don't. Like, they, they, they don't deserve that. There are smarter people. Maybe, maybe, maybe take, a, take an interview with a woman who could write and direct. They exist, believe it or not, Lucasfilm. And, like... Figure out what's a bold, clear vision and try it. And then see if you can build on that. But, like, it's so reverse engineered from just, like, what's the nostalgia soup that we can ladle into your bucket today? And and it's, it's you know, I, I think the only one that's been bad is Rogue One. But the only one that's been great is The Last Jedi. So, who knows? And the overall sentiment and like feel around the star wars they've constructed is so dull yes it's like even the last jedi great star wars movie is so hampered by its place in everything around it like the fact that that movie is sort of forced to take place like mere minutes after the previous film is one of the major things that like is frustrating about that movie and the fact that it has so many character things it needs to pay off from the previous film that it's like that movie is the, almost every single issue I have with that film is something that feels like it is mostly a hanger on from The Force Awakens. And so it, it is a thing where it just feels like there's a lack of sort of interesting, clear vision for Star Wars from the top um, because the vision is just let's go with the most blase, milk toast, nostalgia driven view of Star Wars we can. Um, that then trickled down into all like ancillary Star Wars material. So, like, like just like the general everything else around Star Wars has felt mostly very dull outside of like Star Wars Rebels, which was very good. Um, and then hopefully this Fallen Order game that comes out in a couple weeks is good. But like other than that, most other Star Wars stuff has just been like, a, eh, it seems like this comic book maybe is okay. I don't know. The Mandalorian, of... I think, is going to be the big test because that's the yeah that's the one that I think universally people think looks better than The Rise of Skywalker, right? Like I haven't seen anyone say they're more excited for The Rise of Skywalker than for The Mandalorian. And I think if they pull it off with The Mandalorian, I think that's a way forward. Not surprisingly, The Mandalorian is co-created by Dave Filoni. That, like, you have someone there who has been doing this for, like, a decade plus now. Maybe put him in charge of a story team or something and, like, have them come up with ideas and a direction because Dave Filoni clearly knows Star Wars better than probably any one person working on it today, you know? Like, there's so many people you you could go to like that. Because I think when you said earlier that, like, Star Wars is a more auteur-driven thing than I think most people realized, that's definitely true because I think also most people underestimate the amount of involvement that George Lucas had in a lot of the other material. And, like, he was heavily involved in the Clone Wars. Like, he was involved, maybe, like, you know, he wasn't, like, working on everything every single day, but he was involved in the creation of many of the comic books, the novels, like the Thrawn trilogy, um a lot of the video games he had input on and guidance on so it's like he was the kevin feige or whatever right like he was the guy at the top that people would go to that had like support and advice and like dave filoni in interviews constantly talks about like george had this idea george said that like george like helped me with this 
Um, and, and it's like clear that George Lucas had a lot of involvement and influence in those things that we really love about Star Wars. And so having someone like Dave Filoni that like was involved with Star Wars with George Lucas for a significant amount of time, worked with him very closely, having him be the one guiding things or someone else like him, um, that would be probably the smartest thing to do. But we'll see. We'll, you know, that the Star Wars Episode Nine is coming out soon. I'm very fascinated to see how that movie is going to be received, knowing the things we know on this podcast now after last time. Yes. The debacle of the last episode of, of, of this podcast. I think by the end of 2019, we will have a pretty good idea of where Star Wars is going because we will have The Mandalorian, we will have Jedi Fallen Order, and we will have Rise of Skywalker. I feel like if, if I'm kind of, I've kind of written off Rise of Skywalker in my mind. But if Jedi Fallen Order is good, I think we could say they've figured out games. Or at least they have a model for what they could do in the future, right? That's good. Yeah. If Mandalorian is good, great. They have a model for something they could do in live-action content. This is good. And I think we would all breathe easier if that's the case. If somehow all three are bad, like, ooh boy. Like, like Star Wars is on fire at that point. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and like Disney is just burning money. So very, very curious very curious we're gonna know in a week or two uh, with some of those so yeah all right so speaking of benioff and weiss game of thrones made some news this week sean yep game of thrones we thought it was over but of course it's nothing ever ends not in 2019 jonathan media must continue media must continue this is a complicated story so i spent some time researching to try to untangle this for us all right sean um, I'm, I appreciate that because I only kind of read some of the headlines and it's like, I have no idea what any of this shit is. I'm, I hope that Jonathan does this and you did it. So thank you. All right. So this week, HBO ordered to series a Game of Thrones prequel spinoff called House of the Dragon. This is based on the recent novel George R. R. Martin published called Fire and Blood. It is set 300 years before Game of Thrones, and it is about the rise of the Targaryen dynasty in Westeros. It is created by George R. R. Martin and Ryan Condal. Miguel Sapochnik um, will also be uh, the co-showrunner, and he will direct the, the first episode and several other episodes of the series. Sapochnik directed Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards, The Long Night, and other episodes for the original series. Uh, it is a 10-episode straight-to-series order, so no pilot. They're just making 10 episodes. Uh, Ryan Condal has co-created one other TV show. It was Colony for, I think that's sci-fi, uh, which he co-created with Carlton Cuse, who is a longtime TV veteran. Um, otherwise, I have not seen a lot of credits from Condal, so George R. R. Martin vouches for him, apparently knows the guy, and I guess that's kind of how this got together. Um, but that is what they are making, and this is, this is happening. But on the same day, HBO announced that they will not be ordering another in-development prequel, which was actually further along. This prequel was called The Long Night, and it focused on Westeros' Age of Heroes, which is much further back in the past. This would have been like thousands of years earlier, and The Long Night would have been about the first battle against the White Walkers, the historical Long Night that was supposed to have lasted like years and years and years. Um, this show was being developed by Jane Goldman, who co-wrote Kingsman, X-Men First Class, she works a lot with uh, Matthew Vaughn who's made those movies she's done other stuff um, 
This one was much further along. They had shot a pilot. The pilot was directed by S.J. Clarkson, who has done a ton of genre television. Uh, and the cast included Naomi Watts, John Sim, Marky Rodriguez, and lots of other people. Um, the pilot apparently did not go well. They were recutting it when this, this sort of cancellation came down, but apparently had been kind of a difficult shoot. So HBO decided to pass on this series and go straight to series and skip the pilot on House of the Dragon, which seems like a... <laughs> giant gamble to me but yeah i think this is an interesting story especially coming right off the heels of the benioff and weiss chuckle fuck twitter thread the the appearance at the the film festival where they gave that atrocious interview the appearance of hbo to be ending a show written by written and directed by women with really solid proven track records like jane goldman and sj clarkson have made hits um, mm-hmm. While greenlighting the show made by someone with no hits and almost no produced credits to their name and just skipping the pilot process entirely, which is usually a, a pretty risky move unless it's like really well established property, uh, is interesting. And like, I'm not, I hope I don't sound like I'm coming down on the people making the House of the Dragon show because, you know, they pro- I'm sure they are talented. We know Miguel Sapochnik is a hugely talented filmmaker, but like, just the just that like the optics of it are bad. The optics are bad. I will say this: the House of the Dragon idea sounds like a much better idea for a show than the White mm-hmm. Walker idea, and maybe that's what kind of doomed that project. If you were just telling me blind on like what's the pitch, House of the Dragon, like it's a better pitch in part because there is a thousand-page book of source material to draw upon, and you have Martin working on it himself, so that's interesting. But like. Yeah, it's the optics are kind of shitty, and you know it, it continues now. Game of Thrones airing on HBO will continue to be made uh, by white guys with no involvement by women. Um, which hopefully the writers' room they assemble, they'll actually hire a woman or two this time because Game of Thrones only ever had one woman write on it for like half an episode. Um, but yeah, the the optics are not great. Even if I think they story wise probably made the right choice, but who the hell knows? Yeah, I mean I'm in complete agreement with you that it's like. You know, it, it is not like the the people making it for the House of the Dragons is not as interesting and compelling as the pitch for the Long Night. But the actual story content pitch of the Long Night is just immediately screams to me like that's a terrible idea. Yeah, like I don't, I have no idea how that gets to the point of being a pilot because just immediately is like you don't want to do that. It's like when um, with Halo they eventually made the like the three books like the trilogy about the forerunners set during the forerunner period like thousands of tens of thousands of years ago in halo's history it's like those events are best left as set dressing and world building they never come across to me as like things you actually want to see like saying the long night is so much more evocative than ever seeing what the long night was you just i just don't need it i don't need i don't ever need to see it like the only capacity i would want that to be told is in a you know lord of the rings appendices or silmarillion-esque like this is the history of this world that's the perspective and manner in which it's being told not let's be in like you know the trenches with the characters experiencing the the events in real time kind of thing which you know maybe maybe the the structure of the long night would have been more experimental and weird it maybe would have found a way to get around some of those problems but just the core idea of it sounds like one you would miss the vast majority of what the core audience for game of thrones was i think most of the people 
um, to watch Game of Thrones were not watching it for the high fantasy elements that were there because those elements were downplayed. And some of it was kind of cool, um, as we talked about on our Game of Thrones episode, that I liked the idea of an undead dragon firing blue fire to melt the giant magic ice wall. I still would like to have that painted on the side of a van, because it's a cool idea. Um, but like that show was never super interested in exploring those things. And so I think going to a show like the Targaryen show that is set up to have the same kinds of pseudo-historical fiction like War of the Roses-esque political intrigue and medieval combat and like court politics. That's the stuff that most people like were kind of into with Game of Thrones and what that kind of gave the flavor of the show and what it allowed the characters to be able to do. Um, So going with another show that can do that is the much smarter idea to me than going for something that has to lean into the high fantasy elements. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, there is the, the... I have not read the Fire and Blood book yet. I would kind of like to, because it's basically a, an appendices book all about the Targaryens, and I do like that kind of backstory stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Both of these projects, I do think, are unfortunately hampered by Game of Thrones shitting the bed so hard in the ending, because if they made a long night show, you would just constantly be thinking about how the White Walkers were the easiest threat to exterminate on the planet, like a thousand years later. And if they do a Targaryen show, you're going to be thinking about how the Targaryen dynasty ended in the most pathetic way possible with Danny and Jon. Um, but whatever. I think there's, there's a lot of... grant. Like, I think with the Targaryen thing, they won't have to deal with the high fantasy stuff other than maybe dragons. Um, they don't have a set, like... They, it's not like the original show where they have, like, a bunch of books, and then the books run out. They're not going to have that problem. But they do have a history laid down by Martin that they can roughly follow, and so it gives mm-hmm. them signposts. And I think if Ryan Condal is able to like assemble an actual writer's room and a good diverse team of voices, um, and then you have Miguel Sapochnik directing, and you get a good cast, there's a lot you could do here. I think skipping a pilot is insane for this, because yeah. Game of Thrones had a bad pilot that they had to reshoot, The Long Night had a bad pilot that they were going to reshoot before it got cancelled. Like, Game of Thrones pilots two out of three, two times so far have not worked. There's 0 for 2 on that, so that could be risky, but we'll see. Um, You know, my enthusiasm for more Game of Thrones is extraordinarily low right now. But I will say, if they were going to pick any corner of the Game of Thrones world to show more of that just like as a fan I enjoyed it would be probably the like ancestral Targaryen dynasty because there is a lot of fun story to do there, but we'll mm-hmm. see. Yeah, I'm with you that it's like I'm. It's not like I'm super enthusiastic about the idea of more Game of Thrones, but as like an academic exercise, the Targaryen thing seems by far the the best option of further Game of Thrones stuff to do because like I don't think there's any real value in doing something post where the TV show ended, like. You don't want to deal with the ending of that TV show, and it's just that's not the kind of world that Game of Thrones is. And so, if you're going to do a prequel, which I think is your only real option, this is the area to go to with a prequel. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, uh, two tips hire some women, stop with the fucking rape scenes. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. There's, there's, yeah, they should put those on post it notes, <laughs> stick it on your monitor, help you remember. All right, Sean. Uh, Interesting announcement this week from Sony. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse 2, the sequel, got an announcement and a release date of April 8th, 2022. Which, um, thank you guys for telling us. That's very nice of you. But 
A, we already knew this movie was in development. It's being directed by a guy named Joaquin Dos Santos and written by David Callahan, um, neither of whom worked on the original, which I think is kind of interesting. I'm not, I I don't know who those, I have not seen those guys work, so it could be a great choice. I just think it's kind of interesting. But there was no other new information. Um, Also, April 2022 is two and a half years off. That's a very long time for plans to change. So I really would not take this announcement as gospel. In fact, this far out, I would say that date is more likely to change than to stick. But I would just, I just put this on the outline because I do like that Sony, like Spider-Verse did not make a shit ton of money. Like it did fine. It was more of a critical success, like winning the Oscar and stuff, than it was a giant commercial hit. It's the lowest grossing Spider-Man movie. Um, and I am glad that despite that, Sony is confident enough to announce a date two and a half years out. That is why I put this on here. Yes, I am eagerly anticipating more Spider-Verse, because Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, one of the best movies of the decade. Absolutely. Some might say. Some might put that on a list at some point. Who knows? Especially if you're doing superhero movies. That would be a pretty, oh, easy, yeah. pretty easy number one or two. All right. Uh, next, Sean, let's move into video games. Yes. What's going on with video games, Jonathan? Well, first, um, both the Nintendo Switch and PS4 had uh, announcements of sales numbers through sort of investor calls. And I thought they were really interesting. The Nintendo Switch Lite, we got its first sales report. And it sold 1.95 million units in the first 11 days. This was up through September 30th was what they reported. Uh, For reference, the OG Switch only sold about 2.74 million in its entire first month. So the Switch Lite is selling like a brand new console. It's not selling like a replacement. And also, during that same time period, OG Switch sales saw a bump around the launch of the Lite. So the Lite has not eaten into original Switch sales. They're selling like hotcakes. Cakes total Nintendo Switch sales now stand at about 42 million units worldwide. Its next uh, consoles it's going to overtake in sales is the NES and the Super NES, which is symbolic. Um, So it's doing extraordinarily well. Uh, I think that number for the Switch Lite is not necessarily surprising. I think we all knew the Switch Lite was going to do well. But goddamn, Sean, that's that's a lot of Switches. Yeah, I'm curious to see what the have like the Pokemon bump is going to be because that that felt like that is what the Nintendo Switch Lite is kind of designed to hit with. Yeah. Um so that's going to be interesting to see how the release of Pokemon affects the sales of the Switch Lite and how much of a bump it's going to get off of that. Yeah, I mean, 42 million units in 3 years, not even 3 full years at this point is pretty wild and you know, curious to see where it goes from here. Um because the next story is that the PlayStation 4 they just announced has hit 102.8 million units worldwide. And this is significant because it is now the second best-selling home console of all time behind the PlayStation 2 at 155 million units. Uh, On the overall chart, you then have the Nintendo DS just below that at 154.2 million, and then the Game Boy at 118 million. So the PS4 overtook the Wii and the PS1 to breach that 100 million line uh those are both sitting at about 102 million um so yeah i think that's interesting because the ps4 obviously is a huge historic success it really when i saw that though like it's clearly not going to hit that ps2 number it's not going to outdo the ps2 it would have to somehow sell another 55 million units um and i kind of wonder like because the ps2 and the nintendo ds which are somewhat contemporaneous with each other both hit around 155 million units I wonder if anything will ever do that again. But then those Switch numbers came out, and I'm wondering, the Switch is going really fast. So I'm curious. 
the Switch might be the console to do it, but that PS2 and DS milestone has held for quite a long time now. I mean, I would. I mean, the PS4 did sell, did hit this point faster than the PS2 did. What the how the PS2 has 155 million units is that it kept on selling, especially in like Europe for ever. You know, yeah. I mean, again, like fucking Persona 4 came out in Japan in 2008, right? Yeah. Um, as a PS2 game, so like I, yeah, like. I have, I'm like you, I have a hard time envisioning the PS4 having that kind of tail because I don't know if, like, the market is there for that. But, like, it's hard to know because it is more about, as it is with Sony as a brand, it's more about, like, the worldwide sales because it is, Sony is really effective at selling in countries that most other consoles, like, either don't come out in or they don't have much with. Um, And Sony, like, localizes their first-party games in more languages than any other company and all that kind of stuff they do like full like dubs in languages that other companies would never do um so if the ps4 has any hope it's going to be that kind of thing of like you know fifa 2025 still having a ps4 version that releases you know that kind of thing um that's the only hope that ps4 has but it is you know it is the first console to hit 100 million units in like five years and nine months or whatever it, it, it was yeah so yeah, it's video. It makes me like like this news coming out around the same around the same time made me think back to 2013 and all the think pieces we had about how video game consoles were dead and the smartphone has destroyed the video game market and which like is part of how we had that weird like soft year of 2014 where a lot of games didn't come out was partially because a lot of developers were skittish around the idea of new consoles because that was kind of the thinking around the time and then fucking the PS4. Um, and the Xbox One, like, out of the gate, sold very well. It's, the Xbox One has just had a relatively poor tail um, compared to other stuff. But, like, video games are still selling like hotcakes, man. Like, yeah. people like no, the video I mean, games. That was, one of those, that was one of those think piece trends in search of data. There was never data for it. Like, people were writing that in the tale of the fucking Wii, which was, like, this historic level success. And in the tale of the DS and 3DS. Like, it was a ridiculous thing to write. But people did it, and there was no data for it, and then we've had a whole decade past of more data against that trend. So yeah, really interesting to me. I think, you know, what you said about the PS4 possibly having this long tail, I think that would, I can see that happening if the PS5 is A, really expensive, which it might be. The rumors are that it's going to be 500 um, If the PS5 is super expensive, and if PS5 games are cross-platform for a while, which I think they probably will be because of the similar architecture. Like, I think there's a possibility cross-platform stuff is going to last even longer this time, especially for big franchises. Um, It could totally... It could keep going for a while because by the time the PS5 comes out, the PS4 is going to be really cheap and it's going to have a really compelling library and it's going to be a very similar situation to what happened with the PS2 versus the PS3. Um, The biggest difference being the PS5 will have full backwards compatibility and it'll be expensive but not $800 expensive. Um, So very curious um, to see what happens there. The PS4 also has a lot of room to do price drops because the base yeah. unit is still like 300 bucks, right? So it's it's got a lot of room for it to fall um, in terms of like the the MSRP. Yeah. So yeah, if you get out a like redes- the PS4 super slim, you know the 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 end of console redesign that we'll hear about um, probably e- around E3 or something like that for 200 bucks. There is a chance that the PS4 could have that really long tail. Um, but yeah, you know it's I, it's nice to have video games be like. 
you know, flourishing, at least in terms of um, the hardware and software sales still being really good. Um, and in, in thinking about the think pieces, we're going to get a whole nother round of those. This time, they're probably going to be equally wrong about how video game consoles are dead, and this will be the last generation and all that kind of shit. So where do get, you ready, think get ready that, for those. Where do you think that stupid knee-jerk reaction is? Because there's literally not a shred of data or evidence to suggest that, and there's even less now. Because it like it has gone against all of those trends, like it is it is not supported at all. But I agree, I'm already starting to see that maybe yeah. this will be the last. Year. Like, fuck, like where does this come from? It's so bizarre to me. I don't know, but yeah, like like I have already seen a couple of those just sneaking out, and and which is particularly weird because we haven't even had the like proper reveals of the PS5 yeah. or the Xbox Two yet. So it's like wait for your like weird fucking new jerk think pieces until we actually see what the goddamn consoles look like i mean but, you have yeah, we're, we've got those coming up you've got the ps4 which is the most like traditional ass console console ever right it is just mm-hmm. meat and potatoes video game console you know and it has sold faster and better than anyone in history um and then you have nintendo just invented a whole new category of console and it is selling Faster than anything in that company's history Um, You have the Xbox One Is a failure Although when you look at the overall numbers Not as bad a failure as a lot of other things You know, it did okay Uh, I mean, it's outsold stuff like the GameCube In the original Xbox handily Yeah, so So, like, that's weird And and so, I think this time the argument I, I can just tell is probably going to be around Game streaming, that like, oh by the time You would get a PS6, streaming will be the thing And you won't need, and it's like Show me a stable working streaming solution in my town I live in of Iowa City, Iowa, a fucking college town in the middle of America, and I will believe that streaming will be a thing. You can't do it. It's not a thing. And I have zero faith that in seven years it will be a thing because Mm -hmm. internet infrastructure has not gone very far in these last seven years. So there you go. Yep. You want to talk Blizzard? Yeah, let's talk about Blizzard. All right. First off. Free Hong Kong. Just remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, yeah, like, because I don't want, we can't spend this whole conversation going over the Hong Kong thing again. So let's just at the top here, like, cite, go to the last podcast. If you haven't heard that one, listen to that conversation. Free Hong Kong, fuck Blizzard, like, nothing they did at BlizzCon um, addressed anything about the situation in anywhere close to a satisfactory manner. Um, it's and it is incredibly frustrating and pisses me off. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, we'll talk about the games in a second. Fuck Blizzard management. I don't want to like do a blanket and say all the people who work at Blizzard are bad. The vast, vast majority of them are probably just as frustrated as you and me. I, I think that's fair to remember. Mm-hmm. I, I really doubt the average person going to work on Diablo Four is like a sycophant of the Chinese Communist government. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, so Blizzard management has been shitty on this. They gave an apology at the top of BlizzCon. It was bad. It was a completely empty apology, too, because they didn't, like, unban Blitzchung or anything, right? No. Yeah. The, the apology Blizzard should have made would be to, like, bring Blitzchung out, apologize to him personally, say, this was our policy, but we think we're wrong. We, we honor free speech, and we hope, you know, China understands that, like, these aren't necessarily our views, but we need to let all our players... Like, if they had done that, that would be interesting. But they didn't do that. They just were like, we're sorry. And then they showed some games. But. Yeah. But. The games they showed were really fucking good. <laughs> that's the problem. Yes, yeah. So that's, that's <laughs> it's the eternal dilemma. Is 
you know, the fuck the politics around everything around this whole scenario. But they did announce Diablo 4, and it looks fucking badass. You want to start there? Yeah, let's start. Because that's the one that I, I care about. <sighs> like, Overwatch 2 is a cool announcement, yeah. but I'm a Diablo boy, born and raised. It's very... So, one thing they did that was very smart for everything they announced at BlizzCon was they they both showed really long cinematics. We like, the cinematic for Diablo 4, Overwatch 2, and then there was a World of Warcraft expansion. All of those are, like, eight minutes a pop, which is great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Blizzard. Like... You know, I've, I've been thinking a little bit about the Death Stranding is coming out, like all those reviews hit and stuff, and it's and this filled that hole in my heart of like elaborate, fucking beautiful, like CG video game trailers that Death Stranding we could rely on. That is going away for a while until Kojima does whatever his next thing is. But now we have some Blizzard cinematics, which are like best in class, so good. So we have three games worth of those Blizzard cinematics, and then also they had like five minute long game play trailers for all the games as yes. well. So we got a good amount of like story setup, tone stuff through the cinematics, and then also some some nice like sneak peeks at what the video game is going to look. Yeah, like. and I think you and I are both on the same page. Nobody does cinematics as well as Blizzard. Just I don't even think with competition like Blizzard cinematics are so phenomenally good, and even if I don't care about the game, I will watch. They're just great short films, you know. And I think this was even like above par for Blizzard. The Diablo Four and yeah. Overwatch Two short films that they did are incredible. Let's start with Diablo Four. Um, what was it called? Three Shall Pass or something like that. Yes, Three Shall Pass is, is the cinematic trailer. And yeah, it is, and like you said, it is basically like a, a short yeah. film. It's about eight minutes in length, and it tells the story of three people um, sort of raiding some sort of underground tomb, as the people in the world of Diablo are wont to do. Um, and a bunch of weird demon thingies are attacking them. Um, they get through this door, and then they slowly realize as they are being killed off one by one that this is not some sort of like treasure hoard they have stumbled into, but a like de- demonic summoning circle. Um, they they get tricked by a demon into this blood sacrifice that then summons a demon we come to know is Lilith. Um, that is not, as far as I'm not, you know, the deepest person in terms of Diablo lore, but I do not believe that Lilith is a thing that has existed previously in Diablo. Obviously, Lilith is a thing. Um, that exists in like Christian mythology and stuff. If we ever do our Neon Genesis Evangelion <laughs> podcast, we will talk about Lilith. That will come up then. Uh, <laughs> the preview. Uh, if you don't know anything about Eva, um, but so this this just like beautifully haunting, horrifying appearance of this demon that is like basically a human made out of blood with this like m- fleshy membrane that she like comes through that operates as this like giant flowing blood red cape. Um, with Diablo-esque horns on the side of her head. Um, it's some great, like, almost it reminded me of some, like, Japanese fantasy horror stuff like um, um, Claymore and that kind of thing with the the, the design of the monster um, of, of Lilith and just, like, the power and fear that the way that, like, she's animated and her attitude of, like, almost, like, pseudo-Lovecraftian so... Like, an existence that seems powerful beyond the way that a human could comprehend. Like, they communicate so much about the majesty and horror of this creature that has been summoned in, like, the last 30 seconds of this trailer. Um, that it is... I watched it, like, three times. It's so good. It is... It is 
everything about it is executed to a level of absurd cinematic perfection um it is it is just gorgeous yes the diablo 4 and overwatch 2 cinematics are just like full-on two of the best movies i've watched this year short long Mm -hmm. whatever you want to say the animation in particular in the diablo 4 one unbelievable i've never seen no hollywood movie i've ever seen or like major cgi film has done human faces like that like it's more convincing than some of the like fake Will Smith in Gemini Man, which was top of the line animation. Like it's, uh-huh. it looks so real, but also so stylized. Just the over, like every shot is so well directed. It's so well edited. There's the part where the demon. So you've got the three bandits, and then you've got the like dude who just is looking for knowledge, like the good guy on the team. And there's the part where the good guy is the last man standing, and the demon is looking in his eyes, and they do these shots back and forth between their two eyes as like they meld. And I was just transfixed. It is out of this fucking world, and and just. By the time I had watched Diablo 4, the, the, that, the cinematic and then the gameplay trailer, Sean, I was just like itching like, I need to go play Diablo 3, I need to go play it right now, I need to play all of it again, I love Diablo so fucking much, I can't wait for this, um, I, I might as well get back into Diablo 3 because it's going to be a while before we play 4, but I was just remembering all the Diablo 3 cinematics I think are amazing, oh my god, Sean, it is so fucking good, I also have to say... The animation on these cinematics is so good that YouTube can't quite keep up with them. If Blizzard put out a Blu-ray of their cinematics and it was just like the Blizzard cinematic collection and it was just a Blu-ray you bought of like all of their Diablo cinematics, all their Starcrafts and all the Warcraft, everything, and just put that as a Blu-ray, I would pay a hundred bucks for that. I would buy that so fucking quickly and they should totally do that. Because Welcome to Criterion Spine 1001, that, the Blizzard, the Blizzard Cinematic Collection. That would be so great. I mean, wouldn't that be a great idea, Sean? Yeah, I think there have been some releases of like collector's editions of StarCraft II and yeah. stuff that have done that for like those games. Like there 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 are definitely been times when they have put those out on like DVDs and Blu-rays. But yeah, it would be particularly satisfying to have all of all of them on one. Um because they also would just be a fun way to look at like the history of like you know, expensive CG trailers and how, you know, the old like StarCraft cinematics and um, like Diablo 2 ones are very hokey looking now. Yeah. Um, but it would be fun to kind of look at that, how they've gone from there to to here with that stuff. Because they because Blizzard has done these kinds of CG cinematics since at least, I don't know, remember Diablo, I think, yeah, Diablo 1 has a couple of them, but it's mostly the original StarCraft and Diablo 2 that started doing yeah. it. Um, it is, yeah, it's great. It's so amazing. It's great stuff. But yeah, and then the gameplay trailer, it's, I didn't know I needed you so much, Diablo 4. I thought Diablo 3 Mm -hmm. was fine. Diablo 3 has been fine for a decade. It's such, it's, it's a game of the decade contender. It's an amazing, amazing game. You and I are both very pro Diablo 3. Yep. But, oh, Diablo 4 looks so good. Yeah, one of the immediate things for me with Diablo 4, as someone who is an older Diablo fan, who's played Diablo 1, 2, and 3, um, and the expansions, um, is that it immediately feels like they're getting back a little bit more to the tone and aesthetic of Diablo 2. Um, because Diablo 3 is a little bit more poppy, it's a little bit more like colorful. Um, and Diablo 1, and especially Diablo 2, have this like very grim, 
sort of like desaturated look to the colors um like really deep shadows um and it's like trying to communicate a little bit more of that like really like excessively dark fantasy with incredibly grotesque demon designs and stuff like that and diablo 3 has some of that but they kind of moved in a slightly more i would almost call it like comic booky aesthetic it has like has that element there um and diablo 4 feels like it's leaning much harder into here's like what if you did a diablo 2 style game now um with like really heavy shadows around the edges of the screen like there's they're kind of leaning a little bit looks like a little bit harder into the light radius concept where your character sort of emits light and everything or like past them past a certain like radius um is just in complete darkness and you get items and stuff that can expand that light radius which was never really a factor in diablo 3 but is a pretty big thing in diablo 1 and 2 um so that is back um the the some of the demon designs you get glimpses of just look fucking great and how gross and just fucked up they look um lots of weird mouths and stomachs and that kind of thing um and then also the framing of the Diablo 4 gameplay trailer um which has like this whole like this old guy talking to the like some sort of mysterious figure sort of setup is a feels like is a direct nod to what is maybe in terms of like tone my favorite blizzard cinematic ever which is the intro cinematic for diablo 2 that if you watch it now like the cg is very primitive looking but at the time it looked great and it's this that the story of that cinematic is this old man in an insane asylum telling the story of what happened after the end of the first diablo where the hero of the first diablo takes the blood gem and becomes obsessed with it and eventually is possessed by diablo so this old man telling that story to a figure he thinks is the archangel tyriel and then eventually you discover that it's not Tyrael. It is actually the lone wanderer who is possessed by Diablo. And the entire insane asylum is taken over by demons and goes up in flames. It's a great little short movie. And a lot of the tone of this trailer felt like it was deliberately nodding to the tone of that, that little cinematic. So if, if they're doing that, if they're taking all the gameplay improvements of Diablo 3, because the Diablo 3 is easily the best playing Diablo game, is the most fun, you have the most interesting like assortment of powers, if they're combining that with some of the like tone and storytelling sensibilities of Diablo 2, that to me is like the ultimate Diablo game that could be made. Yeah, I am. Because I'm a Diablo 3 person, I've never played 1 or 2, I never like played PC kind of stuff growing up. Um, but it, I have to say, Sean, because I... Diablo 3 is one of those games that's dangerous for me. Like, I have to mm-hmm. kind of step away from it at times. Like, like I haven't played it in a yeah. couple of years, but when I had the Reaper of Souls edition that came out on PS4 and Xbox, I put in probably 100, 150 hours of, into that. Like, I, I like was max leveling every class. It was just, it was insane. Yep. So I feel like it was a glimpse of, like, what it must be like to, like, be a sober alcoholic and go, like, years without coming in contact with alcohol and then, like like smelling a gin and tonic again that was me seeing the diablo 4 trailer was just like ah, ah, diablo i need it i need it i need it it looks it looks it looks so good sean it looks so good i'm very excited they, it's it's yeah, yeah i'm just so excited for this fucking game they said it will be on pc ps4 and xbox one of course the dirty little secret is they also said it's going to be a while it's probably not a 2020 game 
um, which means it will be a PS5 and Xbox 2 game. They will probably back-release yeah. it on PS4 and Xbox One as well, because Blizzard games run on a very wide array of hardware. Um, but yeah, they, they I almost was actually surprised, because it's such an open secret that the PS5 and Xbox 2 are coming, that they didn't just say that. Like, it's coming to PS4, Xbox One, and next-gen consoles. There was a lot of that earlier in this generation, um, or in the yeah. previous generation. But obviously, they will... It, if it just comes out on PS4 and the PS5 is out, that would be weird. So I don't think they're doing that. But yes. Yeah, I mean, it would run on the PS5 regardless. But yeah, yeah I can't imagine that they wouldn't do a... Here's like what is basically the PC version running on ultra settings or whatever for the PS5 version right. kind of thing. Yeah. So it's coming. Uh, maybe not for a while, but it's coming. And in the meantime, we can all go back and play more Diablo 3. Um, which I will probably be doing soon because I realized it's on Switch and I haven't bought it on Switch yet. And I don't have enough money for it because of this Godzilla set. But... I could steal some money. Um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Overwatch 2. Overwatch 2 was also announced for all platforms, including Nintendo Switch, where Overwatch 1 just came out like two weeks ago. Uh, they showed a gameplay trailer and another announcement cinematic. We'll talk about the cinematic and trailer in a second, but I just want to explain what Overwatch 2 is because it was kind of confusing. Um, yeah. It is a new game asterisk because what is new about it is it will have an all-new story, mo- story mode campaign um, and PvE events. But the multiplayer, the PvP multiplayer, will be the Overwatch 1 multiplayer suite. There will be lots of new stuff in it, but all that new stuff, if you own Overwatch 1, you will also get. So like as a, as a multiplayer experience, as a PvP experience, Overwatch will just be Overwatch. So if you have no interest in playing single player, you don't need to buy Overwatch 2. My understanding is all of that will just stay consistent. Um, but what Overwatch 2 is, is something I think people have been wanting for a while because the, the characters and world of Overwatch is so rich, is a story mode with a campaign and some kind of co-op structure. Um, and we did get an announcement cinematic called Zero Hour. And Zero Hour is one of the best damn superhero movies I've seen. And it's only eight minutes long. Uh, so Zero Hour, you have the big gorilla dude. I don't remember all their... Winston. Winston. You have Winston. And he's very sad because all his Overwatch friends are gone for unknown reasons. And he's with Mai, who is my girl. That's my favorite Overwatch hero, is the Ice Girl. And they are on a plane together. And they're going to go try to stop this evil robot that's like tearing up the city. And uh, they they fight it. And it's really amazing. And then all the other heroes come in. And it is like... Such a crowd... It's basically like Avengers Infinity War, but for Overwatch is how it's like pitched. Because it's just everybody coming together. And like Genji comes in and has his big line. And you know, Tracer's there. It's it's so cool. If you know Overwatch at all, there's like a million like, fuck yeah moments. Like I'm leaning forward on my seat. Like, like on a knife's edge watching this trailer. It's so good. It's so emotional. There's this part where Winston is preparing to sacrifice himself for the team. And it's incredible. Um, and then at the end, the Overwatch people are back together and it's just like yep this is this is one of the coolest things about overwatch and now we're going to get a campaign built around this i'm very very excited uh yeah i know i've played more overwatch than you sean i have overwatch and i played it a lot in its like first and second year i haven't played it since probably 2017 so i have not seen a lot of their recent events i don't know the newer heroes but i definitely am a big fan of overwatch and adding some kind of campaign content is really exciting to me. So, and th- that trailer, the cinematic was great. And then I think everything they showed for the story mode stuff looked really creative and like a cool use of the heroes. Yeah. Cause I, the only like direct 
experience I had with Overwatch was, I think it was technically a beta. I think it was like, it was a beta, but it was basically the full game. Um, and I played it a bit then and, and thought it was interesting, but like just didn't get kind of sucked into it. So I never picked up the full game. Um, and and I've, I've sort of watched most of the like trailers and stuff they put out when they announced new characters and stuff because, because it's really good and that they're fun to watch. Um, and yeah, if they are able to put together a really fun, interesting campaign with a good story for Overwatch Two, that will get me to come to this game. Like, if it's definitely a thing that I'll, I'll like wait for like reviews and see how people receive that story mode. If if it sounds like the story mode is good, then I will probably pick this up because the thing I've always loved about Overwatch is I thought the characters are killer. Like, they just have such a great sense of character design and personality. Um, and so I would love to kind of have a, like the, the something that is like the game telling the story and not you have to go to weird like marketing materials and stuff to figure out what the story of this game is, which is very much the same thing that Team Fortress 2 did um, that that it's nice to have here. Like like we have all these cool character designs and all this stuff. It's almost like a fighting game in that way. It's like fighting games have the coolest looking characters with like the best like vague backstories in the world and you never just get the actual stories with them. So getting a, a cool, fully fleshed out story mode is a really good idea. Um, I One thing I'm really curious about is I wonder how much discussion they had behind the scenes over what to call this and how to market yeah. it. Like if, if like this was a Overwatch subtitle thing and was originally going to be marketed as like here's like a big expansion pack for Overwatch. Because yeah, everything they've communicated about the multiplayer is that it is not a new multiplayer thing at all. It's not like Splatoon 1 and 2 where when they did that Splatoon 2 switch, like you could not play with Splatoon 1 people. It is like, nope, like Overwatch, if you're playing the multiplayer, you're playing Overwatch, all the improvements and stuff will trickle down to people who are playing on Overwatch 1, um, which is an interesting methodology. It's the kind of thing that's like the smart thing to do because when there are rumors about an Overwatch 2, I was always just like, kind of confused about it because you know valve never made a team fortress 3 you know like most of the, like these kinds of long living multiplayer games do not usually get sequels they just get constant updates so this sort of weird kind of middle approach of we're going to call it a sequel we're going to put in a lot of new stuff for new players like a campaign mode um but we're not going to split the multiplayer base in any way. Like that's a cool approach, and I'm really excited to see how that works for them because that seems like a good path forward for lots of other games as well. Is finding ways to get big new drops that you can market effectively as a sequel without breaking the foundation that you know millions of players are already playing with. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be Destiny is going to have to figure this out soon, right? Um, yeah, it's it. I do think the title is going to be a little confusing for some people because. Like, for instance, are they going to sell you the campaign as DLC if you have Overwatch 1? Like, will like how are they mm-hmm. going to do that? Like, what is the price point of this game? Overwatch 1 has generally costed... Co- costed has generally cost $40 um, for the base game download, and then it's just a living game that's constantly changing, right? Um, you know, on Nintendo Switch, there's no cart version of it, because why would there be? It's The, the data would be out of date in six months. So, like... You know, yeah. there's stuff like that. And I'm just curious what how they're going to exactly pitch it and market it. Overall, Overwatch 2 is probably the best way to say it. But I could also see it, you know, selling it as like Overwatch 
the hero's journey or whatever they would call it. And like, it would be like a standalone thing that you could buy and put in your system um, that had the multiplayer suite there. But if you already have overwatch, you could just pay 20 bucks and get it or something. So really curious how they're going to, how they're going to market it from here. Curious when it's going to come out. Neither of these had a release window. I think overwatch two seems further along and will probably come out first, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I wonder if, I assume Overwatch is going to have to be next year because if Blizzard goes a full year without either of these, that'd be a little weird, but we'll see. Yeah, especially because, like, you know, if you have, like, Overwatch 2 announced and it's a thing you know is coming down the pipeline, like, I wonder what that means for updates to Overwatch 1 between now and then. I can't imagine there's going to be any significant content changes. I'm sure there'll be, like, patches and little, like, maybe costumes for special events, but, like... You know, I can't imagine there's going to be a hero that is released right. for Overwatch between now and the release of Overwatch. Because Overwatch Two so, shows off a new hero, you're not going to get another new hero between then and now. Exactly. Like I would imagine they would save any significant content updates for something that would just drop with Overwatch Two. So yeah. that that's why I definitely imagine it's going to come out sometime 2020. Right. Like I, it just doesn't seem like something that would be take them a long time to put out. Yeah. So we'll see. Um, but you know, it's very exciting. Uh, continues to make me want more than anything from Blizzard. I just want them to make a full 90-minute movie. I would. I want to uh-huh. go see it in a theater. I want to go see it on IMAX. I just want them to make a fucking movie. Overwatch, like, I, a, an Overwatch movie would do huge business, right? It would just have to, I feel like, in this environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would play yeah. everywhere. It would play in, in China for, you know... Maybe nefarious reasons on the blood part, but it would. It would be huge in China. It would be huge in America. It would be huge in Japan. It would be huge everywhere. Make the Overwatch movie. I want it. You know, and then maybe outside yes. we can also pick it a little bit about Hong Kong, but I would also then sneak away from the group and go buy a ticket for the movie and be a bad be a bad person a little bit, but I don't care. This is capitalism, goddammit. It's impossible to navigate uh, humanely. Yes, if you want to play your video game or watch your movie, it's fine. Like, don't yeah. don't let that like consume your soul that you're somehow an awful person for being excited about Diablo Four or Overwatch. Because again, I also just want to stress: the people who made all that stuff you loved are not the people who made the decision to like ban Blitzchung, right? Exactly. Like, yes, it's it's different people. Um, yeah. So I think Blizzard had you know a bad day because of corporate decisions they'd made in recent weeks. But a good day because this is some of the most exciting video game content we've seen all year. Yeah, and the, there's one other thing we didn't talk about because I bet you probably didn't watch it. But they did also do a World of Warcraft cinematic. I would recommend watching it because you because I don't know anything about the story of World of Warcraft for like the past five years or something. So the narrative content is more or less lost on me. Other than I know who one of the characters in it is, even though I don't know where what's been going on with that character for five years plus the story. Um, and I know what a Lich King is, even though I don't know who that Lich King is. That's a different Lich King than the Lich King that I knew. But it's basically, if you just want to watch a five-minute, gorgeously animated CG trailer of a cool elf lady fighting a Lich King, um, and then the world, like the sky exploding into glass, then watch that trailer because it looks fucking sick. It's so rad. You don't need to know anything about it. Just to spend five minutes of your life watching this really rad fight between an elf lady and the Lich King. Yeah, I know nothing about Warcraft, so I, I kind of missed this. But uh, I will have to go watch that now. Because I do want to watch a cool elf lady fight a Lich King. I'm always down for that. Yeah, it's great. It's just... I just... This is the thing I'm always excited about with Blizzard is like, I don't give it like you get, I haven't played more than like three hours maybe, maybe of Overwatch since like it, before it came out. I have watched like 
a couple of hours worth of trailers and cinematics about Overwatch just because Blizzard does such an unbelievably good job with it. Um, so I'm looking forward to next year with BlizzCon when we get whatever next fucking gorgeous cinematic we get for a game that maybe I'll care about and maybe I won't, but I'll sure watch the trailer for it. God, yeah. So good. So good. All right. Um, I think that's it for the news, Sean. Do you want to finish with a little bit of story time? Yeah, because this is something that I feel like you've been teasing to me. I don't remember if as much of it has been on the podcast or not, but like this is something I've known has been building for a while. Is the story about this couch, and I am I am desperate to hear what the fuck is been going on with it. Been an ongoing saga. So, Sean, this is the true story of the demon couch from hell. So, uh, a couple of weeks ago, my stepdad was in town because my uncle on this is my mom's brother, who my mom. Uh, in her family was an accident because she is 20 years younger than all her siblings. Um, so her brother is 80 years old. I just wanted to give that context because I am not someone with a mother who is 80 years old. I'm only 27. Um, but, right. but her brother is 80. And, and he has been in ill health um, and he was being, being moved into sort of um, assisted living, basically. Um, and my mom could not come out and help with the move. And I was extremely busy with school and had just taken time off to go to my sister's wedding. So all this stuff had happened. So my stepdad came out, um, and was staying with me to help my, uh, my uncle, uh, do the move and like get everything he needed and all that. Just so there were extra hands around. All right. So my stepdad's in town and while he is helping my, uh, so my, my uncle was also moving from a, a bigger space into a smaller space. So he was downsizing. So, uh, they brought a bunch of his furniture to the Salvation Army, as you do. Drop off and donate some furniture. And while at the Salvation mm-hmm. Army, my stepdad gives me a call. Because uh, he knew uh, for about... So I've been in Iowa City for a little over a year, and I've been looking for a couch. I still do not have a couch in my apartment. I have some nice chairs and stuff, but I do not own a, a couch because I just have not found one at like my price point that I could get inside. Right? So yeah. but my stepdad says, hey, the Salvation Army is having a, a couch sale. They're having a furniture sale. There's some really nice stuff here. You should come down and look. So I get off of school. I come down and, and look at the Salvation Army. And indeed, there's a couch that I look at. And I'm like, because again, the devil appears in attractive form. This is the thing about devil story, Sean. You, you never true. know the devil is the devil until later. This couch looks very Was there a man in a black top hat next to the couch telling you how good the couch was? Because that would have been a surefire sign that is probably the devil. It... it you know, there might have been, I didn't really, I don't remember what the guy who sold it to us looked like. Maybe Let's just, you know what, for the sake of the story, yes. The guy who sold it at the Salvation Army was a guy in a black top hat. Because I never, suspiciously, I never see this guy again. So let's just say that. To, to, uh-huh. to, to, so he's twisting his mustache. This is a really nice couch. It's, uh, it's like suede, which is nice, you know, kind of halfway between cloth and leather. Because I don't like leather, but you get some of the uh, benefit of it. It's a very nice couch. It's big. It's roomy. It's really soft. Oh, it feels great. Uh, it's got a hide-a-bed. You pull it out. It's got a futon in it. That's great for guests and everything um, and I'm like okay this couch looks great looks like it'll fit and they will give it to us for a hundred bucks I can afford that this is great so we we buy the couch and to get it home we go over to uh, our big sort of um, hardware store here is called Menards it's sort of like Home Depot if you have one of those um, so we go over to Menards and they they will rent a truck to you first for like 20 bucks for an hour and a half great deal so we rent the truck we bring the truck over we we load the couch in the truck to get it back to my house um, and this should have been our first warning is that we kind of lift the couch to get into the truck we're like oh shit this is really heavy but we don't really think about it much and we get it in the back of the truck and it's fine get it home we put it in the garage and we're like okay tomorrow my roommate's gonna be here and my roommate can help me get this couch down to my part of the the house so 
At this point, I should explain where I live. I live in a in a condo that's sort of a, a duplex unit. So it's kind of like a big house. There's two condos in it. And my condo has sort of an upper level and a lower level. The upper main story level is where the kitchen is and where my roommate's room and space is. And then I'm on the lower level. Um, and the duplex is sort of on a, a, a slant. So like I've got a walkout basement, you know. So we mm-hmm. figured the smartest way to get that couch inside is we're going to walk... We're going to take it out of the garage, walk around the right side of the house, which is like a slight incline so it, or decline, so it's a slight hill, and then we'll bring it out, and then we'll go bring it through the sliding glass door at the back because that's where there's the most space. So all good so far, right, Sean? All of this makes sense. You know, again, I'm concerned about the fact that you bought the, the couch that has a bed in it without considering how, how much heavier those kinds of couches are because they are significantly heavier than most other couches. They are. We should have thought about it more. But it's not even yeah. the biggest problem. But yes, so my roommate is home the following night. Um, my roommate had his girlfriend over, um, and they were just they were just you know like having dinner or something. And and I asked him, hey, can can I borrow you for like five minutes? Because that's all we thought this was going to take five minutes to bring this couch around the back. He's like, oh sure. So um, we walk over and and uh, he helps me. We, we lift the couch and then we put it immediately back down because like oh shit, this is really fucking heavy. This is really mm-hmm. heavy. Yeah. So it's really fucking heavy. We're lifting it by basically the legs and we do get it down around the back of the house, but doing it like we have to like take like five steps, put it down, five steps, put it down because the wood is like eating into our hands. Like when this was done, Sean, I had like grooves in my hands for days, that kind of thing, you know? So we get it all the way down. It's there. And then we realize, oh shit, this couch is even bigger than we thought. Open the sliding glass door. It will not fit. It will not fit on its side. It will not fit at an angle. It will not fit going up because it is too tall if you put it on its side. Trust me, if there is a way we could have got it in, we tried it. We tried a million different ways. It's not coming in. So now the question is, okay, how do we get the sliding glass door off of the track? And then we will we'll take all that out. There will be plenty of room to get it in. And then we will put the sliding glass door back on, right? Yes. I've, I've never... Like, I have taken doors off of hinges... I have never removed a sliding glass door from its track to try to move something into it. So I'm, well, I am I never, now getting stressed out hearing this. Well, I never have either, Sean, because we thought we knew how to do it. We looked at it. All the pieces that we thought we needed to get a sliding glass door off weren't fucking there. So we call the head of the HOA, who lives a couple houses down, and he knows about all this stuff because he's lived on this block for like 20 years, and he deals with all this construction stuff, right? Because he had the HOA. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we call him, and he says, oh, yeah, that brand is terrible. You can't take those doors off. You cannot physically. Those sliding glass doors do not come off. I know this. I have gotten this call a million times. And, and he's like, that brand went out of brand. Like, they, that brand doesn't exist anymore. They're so shitty. So the HOA guy tells us this, and we're like, well, we're fucked. So now it's like, okay, this couch is not coming in. It's, it will not come in through this door. Trust me. We, if you have any ideas, we tried those ideas. And I feel bad because now my roommate has been away from his poor girlfriend who's waiting upstairs for like half an hour. So now we're thinking mm-hmm. about, okay... What do we do next? It's down under like, so it's on my walkout downstairs. Do we just leave it outside for the night? I check my, my phone. Oh, it's going to rain torrentially for the next three days. We can't leave it outside. <laughs> so now my roommate and I have to bring the couch all the way back up the hill into the garage. And our hands are just fucking mush from the first moving and everything else we've been doing. So I go and just basically take socks off my floor and like put socks on my hands so I can like have some cushion between me and the couch. And my roommate and I 
get it all the way back up the hill. It's absolute hell, but we do it. We get it in the garage. We put it there, and it sat in my garage for about three weeks. But this, I've, I was worried that like somehow magically your garage door had shrunk, and then now the couch would not be able to no. go back into the garage door. It'll fit in the fucking garage. We did measure. We measured like the front door of the house. We measured the garage door. Like we measured other ways. It, it clearly was not going to fit through any of these. And even if it could, the way the staircase to the downstairs work is like the turn the couch would have to make. This couch could never make. That's why we did it the other way first, right? So this couch right. just, we have determined it will not get in. But at this point, my stepdad has to leave. So he flies out, and I've just got this couch in here. And it's just, you know, whatever's going to happen next, me and my roommate are going to have to deal with this fucking couch. I'm having to park, you know, outside of my garage, um, which so far is not bad because it hasn't snowed in Iowa yet. But there's a reason we all have garages in Iowa, all right? But uh-huh. I've got this couch yeah. in there. So I'm, for the next couple of weeks, I'm researching how do I get rid of this fucking couch. And you can tell already, Sean, why this is the demon couch from hell, right? Uh-huh, I think yeah. I've justified that. It gets fucking worse because okay, great. Finally, um, about a week and a week ago, earlier this week, this was a Monday night this week actually. I was looking at the weather and it was going to snow for the first time in Iowa this season Monday night. So I'm deciding, okay, I am getting rid of this couch today. Come hell or high water, I'm getting rid of it because I want to park in my garage. All right, because I don't know how bad the snow is going to be. Um. So I had thought about listing the couch on Craigslist, but I don't want to deal with Craigslist. I don't want to get murdered. You know, I don't want to get any of my friends murdered. Craigslist is bad. Um, Also, I'm not confident anyone else could take this couch and put it in their house if I couldn't, you know? (laughs) like Yeah, it's like you just feel bad passing the buck onto someone else. You don't know who that is. They might come back for retribution because you gave them the demon couch. So we have this store in Iowa City called Stuff Etc., which is a consignment store... So it's kind of like a for-profit Goodwill, um, which is that like you, you drop off your furniture or something, they sell it for you, and they take a little cut of the profits, but you get the bulk of the profits, right? So that's that's mm-hmm. a consignment store. And so I call up stuff, and I say, you sell couches, right? And, I, and they're like, yeah. I'm like, is there anything special we have to do about the couch? And I'm like, no, no, no. Drop off the couch, we'll look at it. And we can list it for you and sell it. And I'm like, okay. And you have space if I drop off a couch today. And they're like, yeah, what kind of couch is it? I describe it. And they're like, that sounds great. You drop it off. We do the paperwork. You name the price, all of that. I've been to this store many times. I, I go there to buy cheap stuff. So, like, I know how this works. I think this will work. And I'm like, okay. It's 5 o'clock. They close at 8. I'm going to go get another truck from Menards. And we're going to put the couch in the truck. And I'm going to drop it off at stuff. They will sell it to me. I hopefully get my money back and we'll be good. Sounds like a good plan, right, Sean? I cannot see how this would possibly not work. Okay. So, I buy the truck. I bring it home. My, my roommate, who I have asked well in advance, can you take three minutes and help me get this on the, on the truck? It's easy to get in the truck, luckily, because Menards has a nice big truck, and the couch, we just basically have to turn it on its side and then turn it into the truck bed, right? So, it yeah. gets in the truck. That's mm-hmm. fine. I drive to stuff at the, the consignment store, and I pull up to where the consigner entrance is. And I go inside and I say, can, can you come help me with this couch? I'm like, sure. And the dude comes out. And you know how, Sean, sometimes you just look at a person and you're like, this person's an asshole. You can just tell, like, they give off an air of being an asshole, right? Oh, yes, yeah. yes. I, I deal with them many times. Yes. Um, so an asshole comes out of the store. And he comes up and I say, can you help me with this couch? this wait, wait. And then he kind of is walking around the truck bed. He's looking at the couch. And after about 20 seconds of looking, he says, no, I can't take this. I'm like, why can't you take this? And he says, 
it's just not in good enough condition. And I look at it, and I look at him, and I look at it, and I'm like, it's in great condition. It's a really nice couch. There's a little bit of dirt from moving it, but, like, I can clean that off. We can, there's no problem there. And he's like, yeah, but it's leather, and it's a little torn, so we can't sell it. And I'm like, well, A, it's not leather, it's suede. But B, where are the tears? And he's like, he's like eh, there and there. And I look, I'm like, those aren't tears. And he just walks away. And he leaves and shuts the door. He, he would not take this couch. He just, I'm, I'm not even convinced that it was an employee. I'm half convinced it was just some fucking kid who likes to hang out at the consigner entrance of stuff and fuck with people because it's Iowa and I guess you can't do anything else exciting in this fucking state. So Was he wearing a black top hat? No. Maybe, yeah. That would answer a lot of these questions it, it also. Would. So now, Sean, it is 7 o'clock at night. I have this truck for another half hour. I've got this. I'm not putting the couch back in my house, right? I'm not putting it back in the garage. This couch is, is being left somewhere, and I have a half an hour to do it because that's how long, much longer I have this truck for, all right? Mm-hmm. So across the street from stuff is a Goodwill. So I drive to the Goodwill, and I'm like, I'm not going to get my money back, but I could probably get a tax write-off because that's what Goodwill does, right? Um, yeah. So I pull up to Goodwill. And I, I go in and I ask, and there's a very nice lady there, and she says, oh, a couch, that's great. And she comes out and looks, and she's like, we'd love to take this. This is so nice of you. This is a really nice ca-. And then she says, wait, does it have a bed in it? And I'm like, yeah, it's got like a futon. And she says, oh, yeah, we can't take beds. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. She's like, no. This, and she even calls her manager over. And she's like, we can't take beds, right? He's like, no, no, we absolutely. It's, it's like a, apparently a big no-no for Goodwill is they cannot take anything resembling a mattress. As someone who who once was a cashier at a thrift store, I can confirm. Okay, this. I didn't know it this. was something I had not thought about, but yes, yeah. it is true. Okay, so I'm like, I'm like, okay, and I tell her, this couch is going to be on the side of the road if I can't find a home for it. Do you know anywhere anyone who would take this? And she thinks about it. And she says, Oh, you know what? Just down the street there, there's a homeless shelter. They love to take. We we send people there a lot. They they really like like to have this kind of stuff, and they they can totally use a futon. I'm like, oh thank God, because like okay, I'm not making my money back at this point. Like that ship has fucking sailed. I've lost money, but it's like I want someone to be able to use it. So yeah. I drive to the homeless shelter, and I I walk in and I go up to the front desk and I say, would you guys have any use for a couch? And they're like, anyway, long story short, yes, but they have no room. So no room at the inn for this poor couch. Um, they thought it was very nice of me, but they're like, yeah, we just, I'm sorry, we can't, we're like overbooked and we don't have enough. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. And, uh, and I say, do you guys have any other ideas who could use this couch? Cause now Sean, in my mind, I'm mapping out the best places in Iowa city without security cameras for me to dump this thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you're like buying a lighter somewhere and some gasoline is like, Oh, this is, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of ways to solve these problems. Yep. And they say, Sean, because they, they say, did you bring it to Goodwill? And I said, yes, they didn't want it. Did you try stuff? Yeah, they didn't want it. Did you try the Salvation Army? And I'm thinking, well, let's, let's try it. So I go back to the Salvation Army where we bought the couch. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping if it's a different guy than the guy we bought it from, he won't know. So I go to the Salvation Army and I say, then they're like kind of almost closing up, but the guy comes out and, he's, and I say, I've got this couch. You want this couch? And he looks at it and says, that's a really nice couch. We, and it is a different guy. It's, it's not the dude in the black top hat. Um, uh-huh. And he says, that's really nice. I don't know if I have room. And we go in and we look and I say, oh, I bet we could make room. Let's, and I help him and we make room. We bring the couch in and he's like, okay, this is great. And I'm just, I don't know if I'm racked with guilt or what, but I leave, I bring the truck back, I'm done. The couch is gone. 
But that demon couch from hell, Sean, it boomeranged from Salvation Army to my garage, back to the Salvation Army. And it was rejected by everyone, including my house's doors. And it was basically just a month of, of horrendous toil for me to not have a couch and spend about $150 when you add in the two truck rentals. Well, I, Jonathan, I really look forward to you tomorrow um, evening coming back to your home, opening up the garage to park your car, and the couch is just sitting right there where you have to park your car. Um, it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's the boomeranging back to Salvation Army that makes me most certain that it is a product of Satan. Yeah, no, it should never have been moved from the Salvation Army, clearly. It wants, that's its home, it wants to be there, it shouldn't be disturbed. Nobody, you should have informed the people at Salvation Army to put a sign on that couch saying, do not buy this couch, it, it, this is its home. Do not look at the couch, do not sit on the couch, do not touch the couch, and whatever you do, do not buy the couch. I mean, the funniest part is, Sean, that like, we got it for 100 bucks because they were desperately trying to get rid of it. <laughs> Yeah, as as one would if they, you know, were the owner of a demon couch, and it is up to us not to buy it, even if it's cheap. All right. Well, that's the lesson of today's story, Sean. I'm gonna go look through this awesome Godzilla set I got. Um, I'm gonna play some games. I'm probably gonna fall back into a Diablo rut, and uh, we'll see everyone next week. And I'm not gonna yeah, sit on I my couch. Of... I don't have one. Yep, and I've got a lot of Victory Gundam to watch. I'm very much enjoying that because that's where. Fans of Weekly Suit Gundam, that's the next place you're going to. And, yeah, I'm going to go sit on my couch. I'm going to lay down on it. I'm going to luxuriate on it. I'm going to hug my couch. Because um, my couch is great and certainly is not a demon couch from hell. <laughs>